0: Alrighty, dude, we're rolling. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! <laughs> what is that? What is, uh, is that
1: response? Yeah, well, yeah, I've been dealing with plumbing issues, not stopped for the last. Week. Oh my gosh! Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, what a way to start it the New year! First was a hot water heater, then a then a sewer drain line, and yeah, it's just not stopped. Oh, fun, you, you know? dropped
0: that's right. You dropped that chat in or the picture in the chat the other day of literally like your bathtub <laughs> filled with sewer water. <laughs>
1: dude my wife she was like hey can you come like uh, look at this really quick and I was like yeah I just like I thought it was gonna be something simple and then just like that's absorbed my entire just like, in there life it's <laughs> like
2: hey I,
0: July, yeah. I
1: don't think it's supposed to look like this you know like uh, it was like and then I was like huh I was like trying to debug it I like went to the garage like go check it out turns out the washing machine was running and because the whole line was blocked the it was like dumping water oh, on no. the floor of the garage there's oh, like a no. half inch of water just like sitting on the floor oh, was gosh. Like, it was a mess it was a mess dude that's
0: terrible well i i have had not the best new year either i have had a little cold well
1: you know (laughs) so we we all have
0: our (laughs) our struggles right (laughs) everyone has their own problems they're struggling with joel um no that's (laughs) hilarious all right man um so here's what we're what we're given to the people this week um Me and Joel and some of the wonderful listeners, uh, some of the wonderful critical thinkers, subscribers to the Discord, um, CTP Podcast Discord, have put together the best content of 2023 um, for you listeners. Um, We have three primary sections we've divided this up into. We have technical content from Justin and Joel. We've got interviews, and then we've got sort of bug stories. So we've got about three hours of content that we're going to sort of recap and kind of put it in. All of this is oriented specifically towards very technical content. So it should be very technically informative. Um, so I'm excited to get into it. We'll just kind of give you guys an intro to each one of them as they come through. So Joel, is that is that all we got to cover this morning?
1: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'll say is, as you mentioned, the CTBB Discord. That's uh, we're doing a lot of really awesome stuff. The community's growing. Lots of really cool research yeah. and questions and tips and tricks and tools and everything being posted in there. So if that sounds interesting to you go ahead and check it out. It's ctbb.show slash discord. And that'll take you right to the server server invite link.
0: Sweet, dude. First up on the list is the technical content from Justin and Joel's section. And the first one is episode 26, client side quirks and browser hacks. And in this segment, we're talking about exploiting HTML injection with meta tags and base tags anywhere in the response body. So hope you enjoy this segment. But yeah, so the other thing that I, I kind of want to mention, and this was actually sparked by a bug at a live hacking event, which you probably know the one that I'm talking about. Um, but uh, a, a friend of ours uh, used a meta tag to get a really, really crazy bug at a live hacking event um, because he had an HTML injection. Um, and uh, and so this is something that I just kind of wanted to make sure everyone was aware of because whenever you have HTML injection, it's, it feels kind of bad you know if you can't get it to, to XSS. but depending on the context, there's still a lot you can do um, And meta and base tags are two of the primary tags that you can use to, to really do something cool with.
1: Yeah, um, I mean this cheat sheet is awesome. There's a ton of cheat sheets out there, but I mm. think you know, uh, <laughs> keep some of your own notes (laughs) i think is like the the key i would say because like otherwise you're gonna have a folder that's got 50 different cheat sheets that are bookmarked in it and when you're trying to think of that one thing you're gonna have to click through all of them to find them um yeah but yeah this is really really interesting i didn't actually um I don't really fiddle with meta tags very much. And I think it's kind of underrated. I like early on, like way back in the day, like meta tags used to be like a much easier exploit scenario where Mm -hmm. you could just like set like base URLs or something like that, that would allow you to exploit them. Mm -hmm. I don't, know how much that's still possible
0: yeah not, so the some of the functionality because you used to be able to i think trigger xss via um via a meta tag and right. um according to this cheat sheet it's still possible using a data uri this was not something i got to test before um the episode it says here that it only works in safari so i can't test it right now joel if you i don't know if you second
1: got, most popular browser <laughs> yeah
0: exactly seriously if, if you've got your you know i don't know if you're on your mac right now but if you want to just throw that little um you know, data scheme in, in, into the into Safari and see if it works. Then go for it. But um, but Meta essentially has a, a bunch of functionality, and one of the cool attributes of it is this HTTP equiv attribute. And originally, it was designed to allow you to essentially set HTTP headers inside of the the page like sort of, I guess, sort of retroactively because it's like, you've already loaded the body of the request. Um, and I feel like there's a lot more potential for that, um, you know, than, than is possible right now. But um, if, you, if you look at this, here, let's see if I can pull up this uh, picture that I had in the, in the doc, the current values that are accessible for that are content security policy, content type, default style, and refresh. And each one of those are all like pretty freaking interesting, I think, because um, with content security policy, you can trigger a content security policy to execute um, inside the browser using using that meta tag. We see that pretty often. That's that's pretty common. Um, but setting the content type, this includes encoding. That that's another thing that I hadn't really thought about before researching for this episode. Is like you may be able to use the meta tag to change the encoding for the content body and trigger some XSS further down in the page um, if you've got Mm -hmm. some weird injection points. So that's one that I hadn't really thought about.
1: Yeah, so I just tested this on on Safari. Um, Let's see, what version? The latest Safari version, 16.5.1. And what it does it throws an error so i don't know Mm -hmm. if it's actually exploitable or maybe you might need to do some modifications but it does say not allowed to navigate top frame to data url data colon text html so it does like it's parsing it and it's like skipping over that zero uh zero semicolon thing yeah uh and it does seem to like try to do it but maybe this is something that they added recently um as as a fix um because i know that like some of the things that are in this cheat sheet are definitely for older versions Mm -hmm. like it talks about like from 65 which is probably that's way out there five five plus years old yeah
0: yeah for sure and, and so like it said there used to be a set cookie instruction which is like oh my gosh that would be lit ah, the you good know? old days that's so <laughs> fun but the way that i see meta tags used most most um commonly now for exploitation purposes is, is for this content security policy stuff and then also primarily for this redirection um piece right because like think about it it's very hard to get actually i can't even really think of another way to x to redirect a page with no user interaction with with just html without using javascript right
1: yeah and 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 for what it's worth that's that works on on safari at least i I just tested that like the the meta redirect for the language tag like that works totally fine yeah Um, but redirecting it to a data url it, it doesn't want to do
0: yeah, so you've definitely got that in your pocket, and this can be useful in a bunch of different scenarios. Um, it can be useful on embedded devices. It can be useful um, in inside of headless browsers, um, and so uh, the open redirect piece, you know, by the meta tag is really cool. And I would love to see some research surrounding um, the content type piece because um, I feel like there's definitely some interesting functionality there. I was trying to think about the default style piece. Um, I I couldn't really come up with anything but it seems weird to me so yeah
1: so I mean there's always the the scenario that always comes to mind with like style stuff for me is the key like the key press uh like sniffing Mm, where I, I think that's always been like a really solid attack scenario where if you can eject styles like you can either you can create a really plausible phishing scenario because you're on an SSL signed website that's looks completely different and might have different different content and stuff uh, but you can also do like key like key input like changes where you like hit a background like a background url or something and i think it still goes through some sort of csp right mm-hmm. um but you know depending on the scenario you can sniff keybinds within the website purely through css yeah. which is just like insane <laughs> yeah
0: I, I love i love that bug so much there's yeah. been some really cool stuff with that and i'm actually i'm looking at because like w3 schools is a great resource and i i use them all the time for yeah for for you know this sort of thing but oh
1: yeah there's also whoa i'm not i'm, I'm just, just thinking Peter's about it right freaking out oh okay oh Ho- you good can you hear me
0: yeah i'm back sorry it like okay. totally went crazy for just a second
1: okay cool um yeah so I, I was just thinking about this right now, like, as we were talking about CSS. A mm. couple years ago, there was a, pro, a, a project that came out called Doom Nukem CSS, and it's <laughs> a full implementation of Doom that's written in HTML and CSS. No way. <laughs> and maybe it uses TypeScript, too. I don't actually... I don't actually know, but I'm pretty, I'm, if I recall correctly, I could have sworn it was like all CSS, which is like the craziest thing, well, but it looks yeah. like there's a decent amount of typescript in here. I might be wrong.
0: Well, Gar- you know, Gareth Hayes, you know, we mentioned him a couple times on this, um, uh, on this episode, his personal website, if you go to his Twitter profile and you click his bio link, that's like a CSS based, like <laughs> freaking interactive game masterpiece of a website. And it's just kind of like an ongoing project for him. And I'm like, wow, that's like... Such a cool hobbyist activity of like just mastering CSS stuff. And he, and he tweets about like CSS related quirks all the time, which I think is really helpful as well.
1: Yeah. What is it? GarethHayes.co.uk. Yeah, check it out. Yeah. Sure. Oh man. This wh- wh- while you're checking it out, <laughs> yeah. No, mention, this is exactly what I was thinking of, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, <laughs> yes. So
0: there's some really crazy stuff you can do with CSS, um, with just pure CSS, which is nuts. But um, I was, what I was going to say before my computer started losing its mind um, was that uh, I went to W3 Schools and I was. It says that there's only four attributes that can go inside of, or values that can go inside of the HTTP equiv. Um, header, or I mean uh, ad- uh, HTML attribute, um, but actually I'm looking at some other stuff, and I think there's more. So like mm-hmm. th- uh, I've seen other references to window.target and content encoding as well. So I'm actually after this episode, I'm gonna go try to suss that out because um, I think there might be some other things we can put in HTTP-equiv that could really, really mess with the you know the DOM um, that's being loaded up. So. Definitely yeah. some cool stuff. I also to wonder if
1: there. there's like undocumented features and st- like functionality because I feel like a yeah. lot of browsers will create just like they'll create weird edge cases with like that they use internally mm-hmm. um, that are only really designed to be used by them mm-hmm. that may not adhere directly to the HTML spec or what the public spec says should be possible but is actually still possible. And you know, it's important to remember that. Just because the spec says that it should be this way doesn't mean that it's actually implemented that way.
0: For sure, yeah, yeah. There's definitely some some. I'm looking through it right now. There's some weird, some weird stuff there. So I'm gonna check that out afterwards. Um, but for for those of you listening right now, what we can what we can confirm right here is it's it is helpful for exploitation in a content security policy scenario. If you want to make the content security policy stricter to lock out, like for example, a um. Like for example, if they're loading up a, a JS library that does purification or something like that, <clears throat> then it's helpful there. And then it's also possible to use it for a a no additional click or redirect if you have an HTML injection. So that's
1: helpful as well. Yeah. Yeah, super cool.
0: Um, so the other thing that we were going to talk about here was the base tags. Um and base tags, this is something that that I didn't know about till recently. I think these have to be in inside the head. Um uh, sort of section w- within the yeah. browser um or within the dom so i'm not sure how often we're getting injections up in there um but yeah there's some really cool stuff you can do with this um essentially it allows you to s- turn relative urls into uh you know fully qualified urls with your domain which is super helpful for um you know hijacking stuff further down in the flow of the page uh and and maybe even bypassing csp in some scenarios um so yeah. I guess some i don't know if you can nonce an external import but um yeah that would be that would be helpful in that scenario
1: yeah i'm just testing this one on safari as well just to double check because i'm pretty sure you're right that it has to be I'm almost certain it has to be in the in the head
0: yeah yeah i think i think it has to be um uh, but yeah, I, I didn't know about this, and this is just another really cool piece that you can you can use in HTML <sighs> no, injection. It doesn't. It, it doesn't have to be in the head.
1: What? Maybe Wait. Safari's doing yeah. something weird. Uh, yeah, this could be something that Safari's job. doing doing weird. Yeah. But I did just double check, and in my body element, I put a base href and a script tag, and it is trying to load it from the base URL. Wow, that's in the body tag. That-
0: I stand corrected, man. Yeah, this, so, this has a lot of power, this element. Um, and HTML, like we mentioned, HTML injections can be kind of tricky, but this is definitely something that you can use to kind of try to turn the tides in your favor.
1: Headers, Chrome is doing it too. <laughs>
0: i've nerd sniped joel is just like staring <laughs> wide-eyed at his uh, at his computer uh, right now like
1: yeah, no, chrome does it too so yeah if you put the base tag I- maybe even I'm just in the body that up. yeah dude i i could have sworn that it was a head only thing yeah but very okay cool. yeah so a base uh base tag anywhere um will change uh, where it tries to load from even if it's in the body very solid man all right. Next up, we've got a clip from episode twenty-seven. This is where we were talking about esoteric web vulnerabilities, and this one specifically is talking about client-side path traversals. This is a very interesting bug from Justin.
0: I was I was talking about client-side path traversals. You were talking about secondary context path traversals. <laughs> um, but we got the we got the conversation done either way. So hope you guys enjoy this one. Um, next one that I had on the list was client-side path traversal. Now, this one's a little bit weird, because you'd think of path traversal normally as a, you know, server side sort of thing, you're, you're putting something in either a query parameter or a path, um, and directly in your URL, and you're getting to access to some path that you that you didn't previously have access to by using some iteration of dot dot slash or combination of dot dot slashes, right? Um, mm-hmm. The client side path traversal occurs when you are able to inject via a query parameter or a hash or something in the user's browser. So, you know, the users click the link or you've redirected the user to a specific spot. Um, and that page is uh, loading a resource based off of your attacker-based input. So let's say, for example, you redirect them to uh, google.com slash example slash 1234 and they try to load a CSS page that, that's like slash CSS slash 1234.css, right? So your 1234 from the path is being taken and put into a resource that's being loaded. Then, it, you know, if it's URL decoding it and stuff like that, you can try to use some um, path traversal sequences to hit a different part of the application, hopefully hit a a redirect and get yourself a a full CSS injection on that page, which as as we all know from listening to other episodes of Critical Thinking can result in some very critical stuff. Um, So uh, that's sort of what I had on client-side path traversal. You got any other thoughts on that, Joel?
1: Yeah, I mean, this isn't a client-side path traversal, but I think one of the things that's kind of closely related to this that I really like as a class of bug, and this is kind of, mm-hmm. it's not really talked about a ton, but I think it, it's like path traversal through ID, and oftentimes I see this oh. with, like, there's a post request that includes an ID in it, for example. There's, say it's a posting a JSON body, one of the parameters is ID in the body, and it's a UUID or something. Mm-hmm. Well, oftentimes you can put UID slash dot dot slash some other arbitrary path, some arbitrary internal path or something. And that just gets fully concatenated in, into an internal request. And it's it's like in the line of SSRF kind of SSRF slash path reversal. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a really, really interesting technique. And I see it exploited all the time, like all over the place. It's something that I now regularly check for whenever I see an ID being sent is let me just try putting a dot dot slash and then like the same ID after it and just see if that still works because that's Ooh. often a really good indicator of whether or not it's working. And that's kind of, um, I don't know, it, it's a, it's not quite esoteric. It's it's a little more common, but it's like a weird um, route for exploiting like SRFs and kind of a server side path traversal, if you want to call it that. Um, and I think it, it, it deserves being mentioned uh, alongside yeah. this.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. I I've seen those all the time. And excuse me, they're, very impactful bugs if you can get them to work, yep. especially if you understand what API is being hit in the back end, yep. or you have some introspection to that through the error or something like that. Those are some crazy, crazy bugs. So, yep. and, and then just to clarify, the reason why you're saying put, so let's say we've got ID or UUID equals, you know, one, two, three, four dash, what, whatever. Then you yep. put a slash at the end, you put a dot dot slash, right? So that yep. would delete the ID you just put yep. in, right? Yep. And then you put the same ID again so that that path is, should be normalizing to the same thing it was without having the, any of the path traversals in there, right? Right.
1: right. And you can imagine this in the, in the backend scenarios, basically like one service is hitting another service. The way it does when that microservices. is- Microservices. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Microservices hitting it through an HTTP request and it goes, you know, other host slash ID, or whatever, slash API slash get slash ID or something, right? However you want to imagine how it's being put in there. And then if you're giving it a full value and it's not being sanitized and that's just being chucked onto the end of that URL, your path traversal is going to affect that internal microservice call and Mm. be able to hit other API endpoints and other things within that other service that you may not have been intended to to hit. And I, I see so much impact approved from these all the time. It's really insane. Some of the biggest... Uh, baddest vulnerabilities I've ever seen are caused by this. And it's something yeah. that seems so simple and straightforward. So if you're not checking for that, be sure to check for that because it's, it's again, it's, it's not quite an easy win, but it, it's, it's, it definitely gives you a lot of leverage.
0: Yeah. And I think it's systemic on the targets as well, normally, yeah. because the target is using a microservices based architecture. So if you find one, you're likely to find lots of Ooh. other unique issues as well with their own unique fixes. Um, and so I'll actually also link in the in the notes for this episode um, that uh, there's a blog post by Sam Curry and I uh, that did, let's see, when did we, I'm not sure, I, this is a long time ago that we had done this. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Sam, Sam is like 24. the king
1: of this type of... Yeah, he's the one who I like learned it off of, and Same. I see so many crazy impactful bugs that are that are shown by him using this. Uh, I I wasn't sure which ones I, I should even talk about because I know like some of them are not public. So yeah, well, the Starbucks. Uh, if you have a is, good example, okay, I do perfect, have perfect. the link. <laughs> it's,
0: it's public. I, there's a blog post, so we'll link it in the description if you haven't seen it. That's great, but um, Joel. You, you, we, we we got off topic there. The one that I'm trying to talk about here is the client-side path reversal, which is yes. different, very notably different. So yes. don't get Very notably piece. different, yes. Um, this is something that happens in the user's browser. I mentioned yeah. this happens in style sheets, but it also happens in JS files. And it can also yep. happen just in, in fetch and Ajax requests, right? So requests that are being sent by the page via JavaScript. Yep. And those are very impactful as well, because if you can traverse in a context where it's trying to like, let's say it's sending a post request to like, you know, load your newsfeed or whatever, right? If you can control that path and you can hit it, you know, make it hit like slash delete account. And that delete account doesn't require any, you know, parameters, then you can yep. force the user to just delete their account. I have found this bug before. Um, yeah. And so definitely be on the lookout. There's a lot of different implications. It can result in um, CSS injection. It can result in XSS. It can result in um, this sort of C-surf sort of outcome. Um, and then the other thing that I, I I don't know how much of an issue this still is, but um, there used to be this thing called 401 injection, where you can inject a, uh, you know, a prompt where it would pop up and it would ask the user to type in their credentials. Right, and then that prompt w- was actually coming from your website, but it was on the page that uh, you know you injected into. Um, that used to be a bug. I don't. I I didn't get a chance to check it before this episode to see whether it's still active or not. But um, if that could also be a potential outcome from this sort of uh, client side path traversal, if you can find an open redirect and redirect to your own site where you serve a 401.
1: Yeah, I do wonder if that's still a thing. I I remember that that class of vulnerability, but I don't actually know know if it's still accessible. That's that's with like uh realm like authentication stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah.
0: and I'm I pretty confident it's it's possible in at least one of the major browsers. I just can't remember which one it is. So, we'll have to check that out. I've got some good guesses and it's probably not Chrome.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not Chrome. <laughs>
0: Sweet. Next up, from, also from episode twenty-seven, is cookie bombing and cookie jar overflows. This is some really helpful content surrounding using cookies to assist in exploitation chains. All right, next one: cookie bombing. Have you, have yeah. you heard of Have you heard of cookie bombing? Slash, do you do cookie bombing, Joel? I, I uh,
1: before I get put on a list here. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I I hadn't real I. The, I'd heard of the name and I understand like the concept, um, but until I actually read through file descriptors um, slides about this yeah. specifically, now it, it definitely clicks. And I would kind of tie it in with the next one that we were going to talk about, which is cookie jar overflow. But basically yeah. these two classes are um, exploiting just like sort of native browser behavior around how cookies are set and sent. And so oftentimes there have been new security features that have been added to like how cookies work, for example, HTTP only um, or site secure or whatever. Um, and that make it so that they're only accessible within certain contexts and they're only sent within certain contexts. And you know, if it's HTTP only, then your JavaScript can't read and write it. But that's fine because sometimes you control a web server that is doing that over HTTP instead of doing that over JavaScript. And so with cookie bombing, for example, you can set multiple cookies for the same host on different paths. And when they get sent, the browser doesn't distinguish whether or not, you know, oftentimes, well, maybe it does. Well, I mean, so I mean it's supposed the, the, the to
0: Paths, but. The paths piece, um, you can use the different paths to bomb specific endpoints. So, like you said, you know, the the this is abusing a sort of browser level problem with cookie management, which is if you send too many cookies, uh, it, it, the browser will still send them to the to the server, but the server will sort of. I guess this is sort of a server side issue. Then the server is gonna freak out and be like, "Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa! This request is way too big. Please, please stop!" Right, and it's right. gonna. I forget what status code it sends. It's it's some four hundred status code. Um, but it, it freaks out and it doesn't like that. Right. Um, and so you can set, you know, you can set enough cookies that the browser will happily send along, which essentially DOS is your access to a specific website until you delete your cookies. Right. Um, and you literally do that just by setting, all right, cookie one equals 9,999 A's cookie two equals 9,999 A's, you know, and then like do that until you've blown up the whole request. Right. And, um. And that will result in the, whatever user's browser you're you're setting this in, uh, not being able to access the target the target website until they clear their cookies. Right. Um, and this can be particularly tricky. Here's here's a here's a fun one here. If you do this on a sub part of a website that is not the top. URL because what what people will do sometimes is they can't access the website, they'll delete the cookies for the specific website that they're on, right? Which mm. is their top URL. But let's say you, for example, you cookie bombed the API.domain, right? The api.domain.com. The, that's never in the user's top-level browser. So if they try to delete right. their cookies for that website, then they can't do it, right? Without, without right, going right. in there and actually deleting all of their cookies, which is kind of a pain in the ass because it it logs you out of literally every single website. Yeah. Um, so this is this is a really cool vuln And you can do this with just a gadget that sets uh, allows you to inject a cookie on the website, which is fairly common. Um, and this is also a great way for you to um, show uh, an effect to availability, uh, which ups your CVSS score, um, and it really helps with like stuff like subdomain takeovers to show impact.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a cool tool idea I just thought of right now as we're saying that, which would be something that basically you could plug in your existing CVSS score, or maybe like say you have a bug and it meets certain criteria within CVSS. And then the tool would tell you if you could get the, if you could change this one factor, it would take your bug from a medium to a high or Dude. a medium to a crit or something.
0: That's a great idea. So so yeah. you'd have, you could put in your CVSS score and then it'll tell you, okay, your easiest escal- escalations are going to be, all right, if you can figure out how to yep. affect availability just a little bit, you know, maybe try cookie bombing or something like yeah. that. Dude, that's a great idea. Someone's got to build that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not us though. Yeah. <laughs> I got too Criti- much going on.
0: <laughs> yeah. Crit- cr- critical thinking community. Please, please take that and run yeah, with somebody it. Somebody make that our, tool. Our <laughs> Even yeah. if it takes
1: four years, <laughs> big work.
0: Yeah. <laughs> At big work. Uh, <laughs> no, that's great. Um, and the, the, the other thing that I was going to say, um, specifically on, uh, app cache, I mean, um, on cookie bombing is you can use it with stuff as well. Like, like app cache. Um, because w- what will happen if you define an app cache on a specific page, uh, if there's an error that occurs at the browser level, uh, it it will sub in a different content. So it's perfect for cookie bombing. And I've seen this. I've seen Franz abuse this. I've seen File Descriptor um, abuse this. And he actually mentions it in his talk entitled "The Cookie Monster in Your Browsers," which I think was the talk you were mentioning yep. earlier. Um, and he also mentions how you can use it to get it to not consume OAuth tokens because you can yeah. cookie bomb the specific OAuth endpoint, right? Yeah. Um, the, the slash, that was like know, OAuth such an interesting yes. <laughs> attack
1: vector. So yeah. I guess if you basically cookie bomb and it sets too many cookies, the request will fail, but yeah. the request, the outbound request will still contain like the credentials or whatever in the URL. Mm-hmm. And so you can, because it's like a failed request, it doesn't, Hit like iframe options, I guess is that correct? Well, so there, there's some there's some intricacies like that,
0: but the one the one that's really you know hel- helpful in this scenario is like, and, and it can help you avoid iframe options and some CSP stuff as well. But in this scenario, you you're when as soon as that that code lands on the page where the callback is, it gets used and consumed, right? So even if you have a reference to that window and with an mm. XSS or something like, you can't consume you can't get to that token in time because it's gonna, you're going to lose the race every time and, and it's going to consume the OAuth token and you can't get account takeover. But if you cookie bomb the endpoint where that OAuth code is getting returned to, when it goes to that page, it's going to fail. But you, because you're the same origin, you can still reach into that page, grab the you know um, window location.href and pull the code out of there, which would allow you to get, escalate your XSS to ATO. It's just such a, such so a great crazy. technique
1: i love it yeah that's awesome yeah yeah um Um, on cookie so then like tendential to that the cookie jar (laughs) overflow which is kind of similar in like sending too many cookies or like yeah o- sort of overflowing how the browser is behaving but you actually have a whole tool for this which i did not know about called check cookie jar overflow i, yeah. I don't know what, it's, what it what yeah. you call it but it's a link yeah. well, on your link. on your domain yeah <laughs>
0: it's a link apps.renerator.dev. you guys can check it out this is just kind of it's just kind of like if you click on it it's kind of like a, just a scrappy little website with like a freaking, um, Apache, you know, index yeah, it's, file. it's literally
1: 20, 20 lines yeah. of HTML, including yeah. the script.
0: And, and essentially, um, what it allows. So I actually, before prepping for this episode, I was like, all right, let me, you know, I was prepping for this episode. I'm like, you know, I, right, I'm going to drop some knowledge. I'm going to, you know, show them all these cool, like weird esoteric web volumes. And then I get in there and I, and I was researching for cookie bombing. And I find this cookie jar overflow thing. I'm like, what the heck is that? I've never even heard of that. And so I found it. And I think it was on the site hacker.
1: Yeah. Hack tricks, which yeah. is
0: really cool. Like that's a great website, by the way.
1: Um, yeah. Did we talk about this last episode too? We might what, have, but what? Hack tricks. It, yeah. I think yeah. We did. But again, this is like one of those like informational type documentation websites that we talked about where this type of resource is something that like, keep it in your bookmarks and, Just like if you're ever stuck on something, check all of the ones that you have bookmarked because oftentimes there'll be some like weird edge stuff or just some like really interesting techniques that somebody has documented somewhere that you can take advantage of to escalate your vulnerability to the next level.
0: Yeah, there's so many awesome, like just weird things in this hack tricks that... XYZ, um, website. So I'll do my best to sort of go in and, and digest some of that and and put it at, back into the podcast, um, in an auditory format. But when I was prepping for the, the, was for the cookie bombing, I ran across this cookie jar overflow, which is really cool. And I actually, um, had, I known about this, um, at the last live hacking event, I would have been able to save a friend a lot of time because he had to go, uh, down this, this path to get rid of this cookie that he needed to be gone. Um, and, uh, he could have just used this technique. Um, and it would have just, he would have been able to get it gone in just a second. So the technique, just to be clear is, um, you essentially just set a bunch of cookies in the browser for a specific domain, and each domain has a limit on how many cookies can be associated with it in the browser. That's the cookie jar and the cookie jar limit. Um, and so if you pr- if you exceed that limit, cookies start getting deleted oldest first. So you can edge out the other cookies in the user's browser, even if you don't know the name of that cookie. So let's say, for example, you have a cookie, um, you know, session, uh, auth session, XYZ random string, equals whatever their session token is, right? You don't know what that random string is. So you can't overwrite that cookie. And if it's an HTTP only cookie, you can't access it from the JavaScript side, even if you can set cookies, right? So you need that cookie gone so you can do a session fixation. Um, and how do you, how are you going to get rid of it? Cause you don't know the name of it. Right. So um, this is a cool technique that you can use to do that by setting a bunch of cookies, overflowing the cookie jar, and then being able to use your own values. Um, and one of the things I thought was really interesting is you can edge out HTTP only cookies, even from yep. a non-HTP only context, which I think is really yeah. cool and seems like a little bit of an issue, right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and again, this is like weird behavior that's kind of intended, but also not intended. Like, yeah. it, you know, it, it abuses like one, two functionalities that both need to exist at the same time. And they kind of collide with each other tangentially, right? Where it's like, yeah. HTTP only shouldn't be able to be set by JavaScript. But if you set a bunch of other cookies with JavaScript, eventually you'll have too many cookies and the HTTP only cookies will just get removed. And like, yeah. you know, that, what, the browser is going to just have infinite memory? No, like you can't, yeah. right? So like it, these two things have to both exist and you, there's no real easy compromise there. So it's super, super interesting behavior. And one of those things that, you know, have it documented, keep it in the back of your brain. And then when you need it, you'll have it. Yeah, for sure.
0: So we'll add some links down below. The little um, sort of tool that, I, that you mentioned before that you saw in the doc, that yep. was just something that I sort of, scraped together to help people understand where their cookie jar overflow limit is in the browser. So you guys can check it out. We'll link it down to bl- below. It's dev slash cookie or Slash check cookie jar overflow.html in camel case, of course. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, so, probably easier to just click the link. You're welcome. Yeah. Just click the link in the description. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, essentially, if you go to that and you click on it, it will set a bunch of cookies and tell you where your cookie jar limit is in your browser. Um, I ran it in Chrome in prep for this episode, and it puts it at 180 cookies. Um, the range for this is between, I think, 150 to 180, but every time I've run it, I've gotten 180. So, um, yeah. you know, you should be able to do it pretty easily.
1: Yeah, and maybe as some off, off the pod research, I would be curious if this matters more uh, like the length of the cookie, if that matters at all, or if it's just purely number of cookies. Do you know?
0: I think it's just pure number of cookies because I was just setting. Let me take a look at the code really quickly here. You say off the pod research, and then you know we're going to do it right away. <laughs> yeah, we're going to look um, right now. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's just it's just you know check, and then the index equals the index. So I'm just saying check one equals one, check two equals two, and that sort of thing. And it's overflowing at 180.
1: So I, I think I think it's just a number of cookies thing. All right, this next clip from episode 44 is really from a LHE takeaway episode. Uh, but there's some really cool tips and tricks in here, specifically around cross-environment authentication, specifically how you can use authentication tokens from one environment on another environment to potentially get access and bypass all sorts of access controls. I just also wanted to t- talk about
0: some other concepts that have kind of been banging around in my head from the live hacking events that we've been to over the past couple months. Yep. months. Um, and, you know, there's just been lots of good discussions with hackers. And, and one of the ones that, that came into my, my brain was this concept of shared secrets across environments, you know, um, and f- specifically JWT related things. Um, if you have a a JWT signing secrets that's shared across multiple environments and you're giving people, you're allowing people to register on one environment with an email, and then you can use that same token because it passes validation on a different app, you know, and I have they no just idea what you're talking email.
1: about right now. I've never seen that what? exact. I've never seen that exact bug uh, on. A, oh, really? Oh, maybe you didn't.
0: Well, th- th- I was talking to someone specific about this sort of bug, um, you know, at, at, at a live hacking event. But yeah, <laughs> es- essentially the bug was that, you know, there was a stage environment you could sign up for, you'd get a JWT, you could use that same JWT on the prod environment. Um, so let's say you've got an account registered, you know, Joel at com, right? I could go to the staging environment, register joel.joel.com. You know, if there's not email, I am being sarcastic
1: right now because there was. I, I don't know if you're like playing in on this, but yes, there was a this exact same thing on. It wasn't staging, but it was just that you could like log into certain apps, and then any app within that same like they use the same auth mechanism, like middleware or yeah. whatever, across all of their things.
0: Yeah, you see it. You know, you see it at at, at, at on various targets. Uh, you know, I wasn't. I mean. What was that sarcasm? Was that like? Are you, are you saying because it
1: exists? Because that was almost the exact bug that I was just talking about as well with stuff. It was the same target, and it oh, was really? utilizing that bug. Yeah. Oh, what
0: the heck! I did not hear about this. This <laughs> oh, is you crazy. Okay, no, okay, I didn't.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. yeah. So there was okay, an so off my actually, to get into one of these tools. Yeah,
0: this is more prevalent than expected. I think because this is this is you know multiple live hacking events over the past year that that has had you know, this issue pop up on a hardened target, like a live hacking event target. So definitely something we see and was was sort of on my radar, because we talked about Cookie Monster in the past, right, that uses sort of, um, you know, that kind of has a similar situation where it's like, okay, you know, maybe you can forge this JWT. But the reuse of that JWT wasn't really on my radar until this past year, quite as much.
1: Yeah. And honestly, like from a, from an engineering perspective, I totally see why it's happening because there's more and more push to centralize all these sorts of auth mechanisms into one place and have like a single, single mechanism that's doing all the authentication in a standardized way, which means that you have more risk for somebody to be able to issue an auth token. That's just valid unless yeah. that single central auth mechanism is really really strictly properly checking like where did this come from is it specifically authorized for this other application that they're trying to use it on more than is it valid and is it like validly signed and all that kind of stuff because all that stuff could be true but it could be for some other service and it could still pass
0: it's actually similar to the uh to the thing we were just talking about, uh, you know, before when when you're reusing tokens across different different providers too, right? Like the the Facebook thing, where yep. where they're not checking the app ID associated with it, right? Yeah, um, totally. Because it's actually a token for a different provider. But you know, it kind of all checks out. So uh, there, there's there's definitely reoccurring themes that we see across these authentication bugs. Which the more and more you familiarize yourself with them. You'll you'll start looking for those uh, attack vectors, which uh, that's been yeah. kind of a way I've I've grown as a hacker in, uh, over the past couple of years. Is like um, authentication related bugs can be really scary, and sometimes I feel like I'm forced down that route because the other scope is so shit. You know, it's like I right, yeah. might as well just look at auth, and then when you do, some crazy bugs can come out of that. So
1: yeah, and it's weird because like I almost never look at auth a lot of the time because yeah. it's, such it's such a, such a weird. Mistake. Yeah. It's such a weird flow, and you can end up sinking a lot of time there. Yeah, and it's like a lot of times, it's like a weird setup stage where there's very like limited, restricted amount of data, and the program. Even if you submit it, they'll be like, "Oh, well, this is just during the registration flow." So unless the impact is like elsewhere within the application, oftentimes it doesn't even like really count, or it's not a high enough impact. Um, but yeah, like you said, I, when you get backed into those corners where where it's a tight scope. I mean, we just saw at the last event, lots yeah. of uh, auth stuff that was yeah. just like, you know, yeah. small scope, where do you look?
0: But, you know, you, you also look at the, at the hackers that pop crits on a regular basis, right? You look at Samerb, you look at OXACB, you look at some of these guys that make a habit of looking at auth every single time. <laughs> they, they always pop stuff, man. They, they somehow manage. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, um, yeah, that's something that I've sort of resolved to look into a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and and on that you know on that note, uh, I, I was going to talk a little bit about um, one of the uh, sort of successes I've had in this arena, which is um, uh, finding uh, or I guess looking at auth, which is multi-factor authentication bypasses. And there's lots of like you know super crappy multi-factor authentication bypasses where you can like just navigate to the page or like <laughs> you know it, there's some 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 um, you know other tricks you can do. But one of the things that I kind of wanted to highlight is like, especially when you've got a flow where there's multiple, you know, uh, multi-factor devices, like, hey, you know, do I want to send a text message to the phone or do I want to get an email or do I want to get a push, you know, Th- these systems get really complex and these ob- objects. These um, devices, they're just objects in the application and they're vulnerable to stuff like IDOR, just like every other object in the, in the application could be. Right. So, yep. um, you know, I remember taking a deep dive at a target one time and, and kind of, um, looking at this flow and finding an IDOR in the multi factor authentication flow. It's just allowed me to use an attacker controlled device wow. to authenticate into the victim's account. And, and you could use that to get account takeover via the password reset flow. And it was like, I can't believe that this actually worked. So, yeah. you th- you'd think that I would I would learn my lesson the after that, things. you know, <laughs> to like keep actually look at authentication more often, but you know, sometimes it just doesn't sink in.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. And you didn't even say the word rate limiting. I'm so proud of you.
0: Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> rate limiting. Yeah, I said dumb multi-factor bypasses, like just navigating to the thing.
1: Anyway. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting yeah. for you to say rate limiting because that's like the that's yeah. like the go-to MFA bypass, which is that you can yeah. brute force OTP codes.
0: It's screwed so many companies too, if you can figure yeah. out a way to, to, you know. Yeah, definitely. Facebook pays a
1: lot of money for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they've paid multiple mid to high five-figure crits, I believe, yes. for that yes. that bug.
1: That specifically, yep. Ridiculous.
0: All right, next up, we've got a clip from episode 47 uh, in which we talked about CSP research, iframe hopping, and client-side shenanigans. This clip is particularly talking about the open-faced iframe sandwich, a technique which will allow you to exploit uh, XSSs in subdomains that aren't necessarily attached to the main domain. Hope you enjoy this one. One thing that I wanted to share that we mentioned on the on the Discord and I realized wasn't really sort of common knowledge for people is this sort of concept of an iframe sandwich. Uh, and it's not really an iframe sandwich, but it's sort of like an, an open iframe sandwich, okay? And and so uh, this is something that you can do because I've mentioned before on the pod and, and other mediums that if you have a target that iframes in a subdomain, okay. So let's say one of the, one of the, the first time I actually fully exploited this, the scenario was, uh, my target domain iframed in a marketing subdomain where you could control your email preferences or whatever, right? Okay. Not a huge impact in that scenario, but I did something cool with it with OAuth stuff and got ATL. Um, no big deal. The, yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, in that scenario, the iframe domain, which is different from the, uh, a different domain from the primary domain, if you can pop an XSS on that iframed domain, you can do some cool shit. Okay. So what you can do is from an attacker, and keep in mind, this domain is, is iframed. So normally it has, um, you know, iframe allow configurations. So what you can do from your attacker controlled page, you can iframe in and uh, do an invisible iframe to that subdomain where you have the XSS, pop the XSS, get, JS control. Okay. Then from the attacker controlled page, pop open a new tab to the, the victim domain that you would like to attack. And that victim domain has the XSS vulnerable subdomain iframed in, right? And then what you can do is you can reach from the iframe on the attacker controlled page up to the attacker page over to the, the victim domain, and then down into the XSS domain um, on that page by using different frames. And because you control um, JS on the iframe on your page, you can modify the content of the iframe on the victim domains page, right? I, that's iframe into the victim domains page. And you can affect that content. So let's say in that scenario, you can rewrite the content with like, you know, uh, something that might could leak tokens, something that could, you know, you could put even a, uh, you know, sort of a phishing thing in there. And that sort of thing is is normally accepted in my experience because you're affecting the integrity of the in-scope a- application by modifying the contents of a domain that they are iframing into their website. Um, and, and so I kind of call this an iframe sandwich. It's not really, you know, when iframes used to be a little bit more permissive, you could do some cooler stuff with that. But um, just making sure you understand how frames work and, and how, what kind of stuff you can access using parent, using opener, using so the just frames to make sure array. I understand Yeah, yeah.
1: On, let's say, victim.com, you have one tab yeah. open, victim.com. Right. Inside it, they have vulnerable.com.
0: Yes. Vulnerable.com. No, no. dot- yeah, vulnerable.com, or, you know, vulnerable.victim.com or something like that. <laughs> but it's okay, so. And vulnerablevictim.com you know is know no vulnerable one knows it too yeah. so uh, now okay. get an
1: right you have an XSS uh, inside an iframe on uh on victim.com
0: well not exactly okay so let, let, let me let me break it down a little bit a, a little bit better you've got your you've got two frames or two pages two tabs with iframes in them okay okay one is an attacker control or an attacker page and one of them is the victim page. Both of them have an iframe to um, XSS vulnerable domain, right? Okay. Using the X, uh, you can't control the, the path in, that is iframed into the victim's domain. Yep. So that's always going to be iframed to wherever the victim says it's, it should go, right? Okay. But on the attacker controlled page, you, you can control it. So you pop XSS through that, reach back up through the attacker controlled page reach over to the the tab that's opened up uh the other iframe page reach into the iframe and modify the content does that make Uh, sense
1: okay yeah so it's it's almost backwards instead like you're modifying the the victim page from the attacker page exactly because it's the same iframe in both because it's the same origin yeah right same origin so you can Com- communicate with iframes of the same origin in a different tab.
0: Is there a better way to explain this? Because I, I had this same a, trouble. Well, you explained it from the other
1: way around. It was a little confusing <laughs> because it was kind of like you get an XSS within this iframe, and then you set up your own page. like. I, th- I think the way you just described it now is better. Where basically you have two pages; they both iframe the same URL. You have an XSS in both of them, but you can easily pop it from your attacker page, which then you can use that context to communicate with the context They both iframe in the other page.
0: They both iframe the same domain, but probably a different URL if it's a reflected XSS. Yeah, like, you know, like,
1: there's no saying that, like, maybe on victim.com, right, like, that you'd be able to actually pop it through the URL or something. Maybe it's an attack... A, t- a complex attack scenario it doesn't really matter yeah. because all you need is control over that iframe context with the same origin right yeah exactly yeah, cool, exactly cool. and as
0: long as you control you're running js execution right on that on that origin and you have a path to reach the the other frame right in this scenario it would be parent
1: oh that's why you open it other up tab, from the iframe is that why you Does open that, it from victim.com why well, you have to open it from victim.com?
0: No, no, no. Well, you you have you have attacker controlled page with the with the yeah. XSS embedded. Oh, would you into just it. open
1: the victim page from your attacker page?
0: Exactly. Got it. That one. Understood. Yeah, and then you hop over there and modify it. Um, man, maybe I should. Uh, maybe let me let me make a note here. What what? Uh, I'll, we need a I'll we need write... a
1: cardboard box diagram from.
0: I'll I'll uh, I'll draw a little draw a diagram for iframe sandwich. Um I'll draw a little diagram and put it on the screen yeah. <laughs> for those of you I watching on YouTube. It. So basically you you yeah. open
1: attacker.com. attacker.com yep. opens a new tab with victim.com. They both yep. iframe the same URL. You pop the yep. XSS from your attacker.com in the, in the iframe, which can then yep. communicate with the iframe in the other tab on victim.com and then you can either control the content, you can do whatever you want within that iframe.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and it, right. and and you know um, depending on the referral policy and stuff like that you might be able to, to leak uh, you know you uh, Oauth parameters and that sort mm-hmm. of thing um, so all sorts of cool stuff you can do with that It's a good way to take an XSS in a subdomain that's you know maybe not even in scope or less important and make it affect the primary domain and increase your impact.
1: Next up, also from episode 47, uh, there's a super hot topic in the industry right now called JS hoisting. And we decided to discuss that. I, of course, got nerd sniped and was <laughs> getting distracted trying to figure out how this all works. So you're not going to want to miss this one. So I, I, I'm, I'm going down a path of trying to
0: represent things from an audio perspective. It's going to be tricky. But okay. let's say we had a fun an injection at a place in the JS where it was x.y, where neither x nor y were are defined, okay? Can you control um, them? Y- no, you can't control oh, them. They're, okay. they're not defined. And then it's, it's, it's a function call, so it's calling the function x.y. The first parameter is a one. There's a comma, and then you are injecting. Okay, and you can inject anything you want except for script text. You have to stay inside the script, right? Um, how do you get this to resolve? Because as soon as it reads the line, it's going to say x is undefined, uh, you know, or, or y is undefined, can't read a property on undefined error, and then your code is never going to run. And so I was looking at this, I was like, I know that there's a way to exploit this. I can't figure out what it was. And I tried actually the solution that ended up working, but I was missing one stupid little piece. Um, And the answer to this problem is something called JS hoisting. Have you heard of JS hoisting, Joel?
1: Mm, I don't know if I've heard of the term, but if you explain it to me, I I might have heard of it.
0: Yeah, so the term is JS hoisting, and it's essentially the concept that functions in JS defined using, and some other um, objects as well, but mostly for this case, functions, defined using the function keyword, despite where they are in the flow, will be hoisted to the top of uh, of the script execution flow. So if you define a function at the very bottom using the function keyword of a script tag, And you call that function above where that function is defined, it'll work because the function Mm -hmm. definition is getting moved up to the top of, um, the, the script. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in this scenario, what we were able to do was define the function X. Okay. And, uh, and what that would do is it would hoist the definition up to the top. So now the variable X now contains a valid function. Okay. So when you try to access the property Y on X, You don't get an error, but you get y is undefined. Then it will attempt to call the the undefined uh, y because of the function call. And when it does that, it will parse the parameters that are being passed into that function. And at that point, when it parses the parameters, you can do a function call in the parameters themselves. um, And that will get executed before it attempts to call y, which will inevitably fail because you can't call undefined. and in that way we were able to get arbitrary script execution and pop it into an XSS because of this concept called JS wasting. So I wanted to shout that out there because we're big fans of, of uh that kind of crazy edge fringe JavaScript shit here on the pod. Um and I'm not I wasn't even sure. Yeah, I I I feel like most people haven't heard of it. So I, I would have been surprised if you had heard of that, Joel.
1: Yeah, I was I was just testing some things around.
0: <laughs> he's got a he's got a handheld mic and he's trying to <laughs> type and speak into the.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was testing some things around this uh, to see if there's a better way, and I think there might be without having to break out of the whole thing. <laughs> all
0: right, this is like classic <laughs> Joel nerd sniped shit right here. Okay, all right, Joel, rein it in, rein it in, bring okay, it back okay. to the pod.
1: Okay, what I was gonna he say says, is, he says, "Okay,
0: though, he's still freaking looking at
1: it." I am still freaking looking at it. I was just gonna. <laughs> x is not fun. Okay, um, yeah. So the JS hoisting thing, it seems that so context is important, right? Um, yeah. Basically, my thought was like maybe you could do this without having to break out of the function, um, but even if you define x within the parameters, it doesn't work because it's right. within the con- like. So it, you can. It do never like,
0: gets evaluated because it fails be- right in the beginning.
1: Right. So like you you, uh, tweeted out uh, a similar like an XSS challenge like a while ago and it had mm-hmm. to do with essentially in JavaScript there's a behavior where you can use commas to provide multiple statements and and you can assign variables to the last variable, the last mm-hmm. thing that is returned in that comma sequence. Um, yeah. And you can abuse that in a similar way here um, where you can use that for like, you know, one comma or whatever, and you can just it, it, within your parameters you can do the same thing. Um, But because it's within that context of it's already trying to call it, it seems that it has to be like what you said, like you have to define it because it's going to try and call it before it evaluates. um,
0: Well, it's going to try to read the, the, yeah.
1: Like the object itself. So it's going to say, does the object exist? Then it gets Mm. the parameters, then it passes them into the function call.
0: Exactly. And when it tries to say, Hey, I need to get the X or the Y property of X,
1: then and yeah, X, in, exist in X is
0: undefined, then you can't get a property of undefined and then right. that'll error. Right. Um so shout out to BitK um and to Johan and a couple of the other people that I think Carl also, Corel origin, um also got it. Um and was able to, to exploit this. So uh, definitely appreciate the the help there. And I learned a lot about JavaScript that day, because then I had to, deep, of course, I had to deep dive JS hoisting. So there's a bunch of, um, you can do it with variables, you can do it with classes. But the cool thing about functions is it's not just, um, the thing doesn't just get defined, it gets sort of, a, it, it's initialized yeah. too. It's an actual well, object. And like,
1: I'm pretty sure the reasoning for this was that like way back in the day, there was a, there was a historical problem with programming languages where if you define something after it was used, it couldn't be called. Mm -hmm. And I think this was most common with like C and C++ and stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you had a function that was like, if your main function essentially wasn't at the end of your program, then you couldn't like Mm -hmm. call anything else because it didn't know it existed. I think this was maybe why header files exist. I don't know. I'm I'm not an expert on this, but essentially like that's part of what JS is trying to solve here is that like if you call something before it's defined, it should still be able to call it, even if because it's defined. It's just that like it it does some restructuring and like I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. It's it's super interesting. Um well the like the other reworking interesting that thing, existing behavior to, to work in your in your in your favor.
0: Yeah. The the other interesting thing with this is that um it doesn't, it doesn't work for variables defined to functions. So, for example, if you did var x equals function, blah blah, 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 and defined it that way, like you were defining a variable pointing to a function rather than using the function keyword, then it won't work. But if you use the function keyword um, as the primary expression in that, that line of code, then, um, it will, it will hoist it. So lots of cool, lots of cool things there. I was just talking to my my brother-in-law the other day, who's a programmer, and we were talking. He was saying he freaking hates JavaScript, and I was like, man, I love JavaScript because JavaScript. There's so many ways to get everything done, and there's so many quirks to the language. It's like a hacker's dream. It really is.
1: So. It really is. Yeah, it's super interesting that um, if you define it as a variable, it works but doesn't work.
2: What
0: do
3: you mean?
1: So when you when you do, like if you do var x equals function afterwards, after the call, yeah. it'll say, cannot read properties of, oh no, it doesn't work. Sorry, I misread it. I misread yeah. it. My bad.
0: Sorry. Well, sometimes it'll, so there is something you can do with var because var will hoist the, the definition to the top or the um, initialization. Nope, not that. The definition to the top, but not the initialization. There we go. Um, or maybe it's the declaration. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. You know, it'll hoist the declaration, but it will not hoist the initialization. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's a little bit of a of a quirky thing there. And with that, we're on to the interview section. We've got a lot of great guests on this list. And first up is Sean Yo from Asset Node. We had a great conversation with him surrounding everything recon. And specifically, the clip we took for today is diving into what should be your primary key in your recon infrastructure? Should it be IPs? Should it be subdomains? I think Sean has a really nuanced answer, so I hope you enjoy it. Well, for example, one of the things that I, I I and we were talking about earlier today with Odjota was, um, you know, dividing out your domains and your IP addresses logically, mm-hmm. and and not making your your subdomain your primary key, right? Yeah. Like that was my when I that was my biggest architectural mistake I made. Yeah when I built my Recon system was I was like, I was obsessed with subdomains. Yeah. I was like, a subdomain is, is the end all be all, but yeah. really at the end of the day, it all goes down to, I, you know, IP addresses. I shouldn't say that, but it, it mostly all goes down to IP Well, I mean, that's right? a good point. Cause yeah. I think. All- so this is the kind of discussion I want to have is like, you know, what, what are those, those mistakes like m- focusing on subdomains instead of focusing IP addresses as the lowest level of logical entities and, you know, mapping those because yeah,
4: mm. I think it, also comes to like, what kind of recon are you doing? Yeah. Right? And I think yeah. subdomains is fine because a lot of things, like subdomains is the easiest identifiable way of looking at something. Yeah. The reason you say IP addresses is relevant is because there's a whole bunch of assets and like, what well we, yeah, what well we consider assets that might not have a subdomain right. associated, right? Right. Like companies like. Or just a subdomain that you don't know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. They don't yeah. like they exist on the internet, you just can't see them yeah. yet.
1: But yeah. there's also like a whole separate set of pitfalls, like when you start to go to that level because IPs rotate, like things yes. subdomains get reassigned. So like you might have an IP address that's stored and then you are scanning and you're like, oh my God, there's a new service on this. Yeah. It's exploitable. And then it turns out it belongs to somebody else. It too. <laughs> like it's yeah. com- it's not even theirs, and then you report it to the company, and they're like, "We don't we don't own this IP." Yeah,
0: yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, it, it, I think it all it all depends on, and this is kind of what we were talking about earlier. Sort of correlation factors, and I think that right. could definitely be a new logical entity in a recon structure system. You know, yeah. like like you have this this domain, and you've got that you know database what you know about that domain, and you've got this a subdomain meaning. And, or FQDN, and then you've got this IP address and then you've got some sort of relationship between the two of yeah. them and how that's correlated. It could be a DNS um, an- entry that correlates them. It could be a TLS, yep. you know, SNI, you know, it could be, you know, um, historical data. It yeah. could be, you know, uh, what what else could it be? I'm, I'm trying I to mean- think. Did, I, what do you think I, about I've, that?
4: Yeah. I've been modeling over this idea for a couple of years and yeah. I've tried to implement this at AssetNote, but the use case is very nuanced, right? Yeah. So yeah. when you start getting to more and more cloud native apps, the ways you identify what you consider like an asset starts to change very differently. Yeah. Right. In, in a very traditional old school setting, it'll probably be like, we have IP addresses on servers and that's it. We might give them a subdomain. But when you get to like the other end of the spectrum, Uber starts routing things based on your subpart. Um, and if you want to be more specific, yeah. Uber starts routing things based on your subpath in a specific geolocation, Yeah. right? So even if you hit the same IP address with the same subdomain, same SNI, same path, you'll be hitting two different data centers that might be running different versions of your app, yeah, right? That's true. Even that's further, wow. it might be getting feature flagged and routed to another version of the app based on your user ID, right? And all of these means that at the end of the day, the app you're looking at might not even be the same one. Uh, you might be getting like a China version of the Uber app versus a American version of the Uber app. Sure. Um, or even you might be getting a beta Uber app versus the production app. Right. And I think factoring all of these in into like what you call this correlation. Yeah. Uh, probably is overkill for most people. Um, yeah, but I want it to be perfect. <laughs> but you <want> it to, <laughs> be like, well, how about this? For every single company, you create a unique correlation, right? And so. <laughs> of, of course, you build your mental model, you grab Cosman back and you ask him, how does (laughs) deploy their apps? Right. Right? And then you work backwards from there. You say, I factor it, doesn't care about geolocation. They don't care about user ID. They care about their tenant ID. They care Mm. about this subdomain, whatever. Mm -hmm. But for Uber, totally different story. Now we're an entire different paradigm. Here's a new correlation method. Right. You want to go to the nth degree, you might as well. I know. It's
0: it's in, 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 no. I mean, you made a perfect point, which is, that we can't over, I mean, you, you so perfectly pointed out that, that flaw of like, this is just going to be way over engineering some yes. of these, some of these things. And, and at the end of the day, you are gonna, you are gonna, you know, run into these, these scenarios where you're like, ah, it's not perfect, but then you gotta, you gotta decide is the trade-off of that fixing that problem actually going to get me enough bounties to yeah. justify the time that I'm spending on it. And okay. the answer to, to that a
4: lot of the time is no. I mean, sometimes... Unless
0: you want to make it your thing. Yeah, you know? like, sometimes and it's worthwhile also thing. hacking
4: around it, right? right? You might have this system that works for 90% of the cases, yeah. and then you decide, okay, I'm going to spend, like, three weeks looking at Google infrastructure, right? And now yeah. this is its entire own beast that has its own books written on it. Right. Um, so I'm just going to hack together something that's just for this. And maybe you'll find that I've now spent three months on it, I understand it enough, now I can merge it back into Mainline mm. and feed this across the rest of it. Yeah. Like, you don't have to make everything into your giant monolithic beast, right? You can always have smaller pieces that's for something else. And then once you sort of figure out how this works, it then comes back naturally into the rest of the work you're doing.
1: In this clip from episode 30, we're talking with Shubs, all about reverse engineering enterprise software to find awesome zero days. You know, it seems like
0: you guys have really found some amazing bones together. And one of the common threads that I noted across all this, because I'm, I'm not proficient in this specific area is the use of a dynamic analysis, um, you know, of hooking up a debugger to it and, you know, stepping through the code and breaking at certain points and stuff like that. Um, So, you know, can you talk to me a little bit more about that process and how that's changed your approach to enterprise software?
5: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, debugging is almost necessary when Mm -hmm when we're looking at complex enterprise software mm-hmm. sometimes unfortunately it's just not possible mm-hmm. and and we 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 don't have the installation file or we can't install it like some of the oracle software that's out there and it's just too tricky to to get up and running but right. but 9 times out of 10 we're looking to get a debugger going because um most of the vulnerabilities that we find they, they can be really complex and without a debugger we can't Figure out exactly, you know, what are the variables at a certain breakpoint? How do we manipulate them to get what we want, um, and and things like that. So these days, um, most of the projects that we debug from a, I guess, just from a, a dynamic analysis perspective, is mostly Java and .NET projects. Mm, for mm. for Java, we use IntelliJ, um, which is you know you can get the community edition, it works fine out of the box, and you can start debugging things. For .NET, we use Rider. And that's also from JetBrains, and that's beautiful. Like honestly, Rider you can attach directly to a process. It starts de- decompiling everything for you, and you can start setting breakpoints quite easily. So, for the- for those two languages, that's what we use. Um, and I think um, when it comes to binary analysis, we of- obviously we use things like GDB and things like that mm-hmm. to, to do-, sure. do our dynamic analysis. Um, but. But yeah, Dylan, um, he's honestly um, one of the the best researchers that I've ever worked with. Yeah, um, he's, we he's hired phenomenal. Him. He's great. He's he's so great that, like, sometimes sometimes he's very quiet. So t- sometimes he'll be quiet for six hours or something, and I'll ask him, like, what's the progress? And he'll be like, yeah, I got an orth bypass or a shell <laughs> or an RC. I'm like, dude, you could have told me earlier. I've been, like, on the edge of my seat this whole time, you know what I mean? So... So um so Dylan's sometimes quiet but he's he's very very good. It's I mean like his the background kids in the is other very room, interesting, you
0: know. If you're not hearing them, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're getting into something, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
5: Yeah, and he's 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 just so multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um he has um such good skills in Java and .net um and- but he's able to get his hands quite dirty with uh, binary exploitation and analysis as well, which mm. is something that's incredibly valuable for us. As you guys have seen, like recently, the Citrix vulnerabilities have come out and it was like a race to patch diff them and find the, the, yeah. the RCE. So, so without Dylan, we wouldn't have been able to do that work, basically. Yeah, no, he he seems like a really valuable addition to the team.
0: And and yeah, I'm always watching that that vlog, very uh, you know, hopeful for the next one to come out. Do you have any any teasers for us? Any anything you want to tell us about coming up
6: soon?
5: Yeah, yeah, for sure. There, there was a metabase pre-auth RCE that was announced um around a week ago. So that that's that's the next thing coming up. It's done by myself and an ex-colleague of mine. Um and we're, we'll be releasing that on August 20. Uh, that's nice. the slated release date. I saw you mentioning
1: date. that in, in Bug Bounty Forum. For sure. But Somebody the one was like, thing hey, has on... anybody... <laughs> Somebody posted <paused laughs> there like, hey, does anybody know anything about this MetaBase RCE? And Shubs just replies, yeah, Acid I found that. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah,
5: it was it was, it was was a really fun bug. And I think people are going to really enjoy the chain because it was not straightforward. And our final exploit payload has like maybe five or six different tricks in one payload. Dude. So it's really, really fun to, fun to see. Um, but... But um, you know, we'll see. There's already Chinese um, researchers that have reproduced the issue and they've posted tweets of a blurred burp window of the issue. So if it drops before August 20, we'll drop our blog post.
0: Gotcha. Wow. Dude, that's awesome. Nice. I, I, I love to get the little sneak peek here. So thanks for sharing that. That's that's great. Um <clears throat> so I guess acid note. So going 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 to acid note, right? Um, just for those of you that that aren't familiar. Asset Note is the, um, I guess, enterprise security software that, um, uh, I guess, w- w- how would you, I'll let you do, describe it, Shub. Uh, it's a, it's a reconna- It started off as a reconnaissance software uh, in order to help you do asset management, but it's evolved to so much more.
5: That's right. So originally it was an open source project that was just to discover assets as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. But now basically what Assetnote does is it discovers all the assets that belong to your organization on the external attack surface, Mm -hmm. and it continuously monitors it for exposures. So it finds security vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. and indicators that 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 organizations can use. But you know, like the, the the difference between a indie, homegrown, open source bug bounty tool. And an enterprise product that we sell mm-hmm. to the largest enterprises in the world—it's just so much in between. So so, so it's, different. <laughs> it's just so different, and I, and I you know I mean I see a lot of the the frameworks out there that get released and and all that sort of stuff, and um, they're excellent. But I just think that like to to sell to enterprises, there's just so many demands that aren't even things that are on people's minds when it comes to building software um, necessarily that. That has been very interesting to to work. Yeah,
0: like. yeah, for sure. So this product, you know, has evolved from Recon to to asset management to asset management plus vulnerabilities, and then you know, also it seems like this research branch has sort of come out of it. Now, is is that is that a supplement to the product? Is that kind of how you're seeing it, or uh, why did you guys decide to start this research side of the of the company?
5: Yeah, we we just identified, like, we because we have access to all of this reconnaissance data for all mm-hmm. of our customers, including the technologies. Right. We right. identified that we have this really unique opportunity to do security research in a way that's targeted towards our customers. Mm. And basically, mm. our security research team has maybe, like, two or three functions. I'd say that the main function is satisfying the needs of our customers when it comes to when a new vulnerability comes out, like the Citrix RCE. Like we've, we've got plenty of customers that hit us up being like, do you have a check for this? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. like for, for a very long time, I was the single person on the security research team doing this sort of work, (laughs) but after a certain point, there's just so many different new vulnerabilities that are getting released that we need to stay on right. top of. We needed a research team. It was a natural progression in, inside the product. Like we can't offer a great like exposure scanning service if we aren't staying on top of the new patches being released, new vulnerabilities being released, even new nuclei releases, for example, we need to mm. stay on top of because there might be something in there that you know might affect our customers. But um, the research branch also has a second um, purpose, which is marketing. And mm-hmm. you might have noticed that, you know, like at AssetNote, we don't actually invest that much money into traditional marketing. Like we don't have like crazy campaigns for traditional right. marketing. We don't have banners at Black Hat. I haven't Hat seen any or, billboards. Uh, a how you don't RSA. Get, get private no. rooms. Yeah, No stuff. posters. And I mean, guys, like th- there might be a time in the future where we have to do that sort of stuff as the, as the company progresses. But... But until now, which is a five-year journey, till now, we've relied on our technical um, content to be the biggest yeah. marketing that we do, yeah. and um, I can say it's been incredibly successful. Um, I think yeah. from our technical marketing, we get probably the most inbound leads. I think if we could attribute them all, yeah. um, which is just you know, as a business, it's not a bad model. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. So, w- Go ahead, Joel.
1: Yeah. So which one would you say sort of drives the other one? Do, would you say that your research team is more like finding new things, reversing patches, providing those vulnerabilities at, like as soon as possible to your customers or your customers prompting you with, hey, we heard about this vulnerability or we're affected by this vulnerability. Can you guys check for it? And then you, the research team goes and looks into it.
5: So, so we, we, we split up our research stream into two different things, which is reactive and proactive. And, um, nice. the reactive stream, um, is, is obviously like when customers reach out or anything gets released on the internet, things like that. We prioritize reactive over proactive, but we do definitely still have a lot of time left for yeah. proactive yeah. research. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, um, for us, the number one priority is our customers and what they, what their requests are. So we often even work with customers to get access to software that we may not typically have access to, but, yeah. um, that's, that's where we spend most of our time is for customer concerns
0: dude that's that's nice. just what what an amazing service what an amazing product you guys have developed there and i i love that it, it it's roots its origins are in security research and in a, a thorough understanding from a technical level of what kind of stuff gets you pwned you know and 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 going yeah. after that like these cve reversing um, you know, sprees that you guys have gone on, and I and I loved that piece as well about you breaking it up into reactive and proactive. I think that's really, really, um, awesome. And I imagine on the proactive yeah. side, you know, what what you're doing for that is is you're looking, you know, you're looking at all of your your customers. You alluded to this before, but you're looking at all of your customers' technology stacks. And I mean, do you just pick the one with the you know, greatest number or are you looking for specific things like, okay, this is Java or this is .NET so I know I can hook up a debugger to it and have a better chance of finding a vault?
5: Uh, We'll be ready to target anything that has enough exposure for our customers. But like, Mm. for example, we looked at cPanel and that's written in Perl. Yeah, that was crazy. And that's like uh, crazy (laughs) and written in Perl and like all these C binaries and stuff is honestly a mess. Like as a security researcher, (laughs) you go into that project and you're like, I really don't like working with this project. But but ultimately we'll we'll do anything. But yeah. but um the proactive side, just to note on that, um, while we look at our customers' technologies, we're also not afraid to look at technologies that our customers may not be running now, but we might see it on a prospective customer or we mm. might see it on, on the attack surface in the future. Um and this this is often just popular software. So if there's any really popular enterprise software, that's usually a good enough target for us. Mm. That's
0: that's awesome, man. So so I guess that's, that's for you guys. You guys have a great, and we can sort of apply these principles to bug bounty as well. You know, we can look at the programs we're in, we can fingerprint the technologies and we can do the same thing. Um, but specifically from the CVE, you know, reversing perspective, can you speak to how that could help a bug bounty hunter and what kind of skills they would develop as well as, you know, what kind of results they might see if they invest more time into um, yep. zero day research or more specifically CVE reversing?
1: And, and yeah. just to tag on to that a little bit, can you also maybe talk about the amount of time it takes oh, and yeah. sort of what the input versus output looks like on these types of things?
5: Yeah, I would say that um, most CVE reversing work doesn't usually lead to an immense amount of bounties. If there's a lot of patching going on, but sure. for example, if you were to take if you were to take the Metabase research, for example, um, then I think you could potentially get a few bounties out of that. Um, I when it comes to inputs and outputs, I mean, it really just depends on every project. Every project can be, you know, it, like, for example, for Citrix, there was no information that they provided in their advisory that would even mm-hmm. hint to us where this may be located. It wasn't until we had other people in the industry publish more things like Bishop Fox mm-hmm. that we saw, okay, there's some more information here. We can work with this and find potentially what, what they're referring to. And, and there's always the problem of silent patches. Which is uh, mm-hmm. probably the most frustrating part of oh this gosh, whole yeah. CVE reversing game um, where they'll release an advisory for an RC that's critical, but they'll patch like five other things in that same release that they don't talk about. So I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of variability when it comes to whether or not we'll find. What we're looking for in the CV reversing project, certainly it's much easier on Java-based and .NET projects. When it comes to binary-based projects, that's where it gets really difficult because you're right. suddenly now you're you're diffing the bins, and there's like just so much you know so much to go through that's very esoteric and very difficult to understand at a glance. So it's easy to miss things in binary projects, but. There's this intersection, right, with with web and binary when it comes to appliances, like you know, VPNs and firewalls and things like that. And we we have to spend more time on this sort of work because um, ultimately these products are exposed on the internet and can lead to a shell right. on their network. So by nature, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, from a bug bounty perspective, I think the most profitable thing to do is find zero days and report them to programs. But there is a lot of controversy around that, as you guys yeah. all
1: know. Yeah, and, let's, and, um, let's let's uh, let's yeah. start
0: that conversation. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I mean,
0: I, um, yeah. I personally, I personally think there's a lot of value, almost like what Asset Note does, right? Uh, but from the bug bounty perspective of getting your hands on a a vulnerability with advanced notice, right? Because um, you know the patch cycles, especially for some of these bigger companies, um, they're going to be a little bit longer, and and um, it's hard to track down all your assets as as you know as the asset list grows and grows and grows, um, and so you know by nature, if you get a couple you know months head start. On, on, oh, this phone this is going to be released and, you know, just a heads up, you're vulnerable. Uh, I think that adds a lot of value and I think that's something that companies should pay for, whether it should be, you know, their full max crit or whether it should be, you know, some bonus or some lower amount. Um, that's, you know, to be determined, I guess, by the by the company. But uh, that's my position on it. Do you guys, what, what do you guys think?
1: I can't hear what Joel thinks. I mean... Yeah, yeah, let's hear Joel. <laughs> okay, so from a from a company perspective. Yeah. Um it's a it's a, it's definitely a tricky situation, right? Like mm-hmm. I I I see both sides a lot better than I think some other people in the industry do, mainly because I'm both a bug bounty hunter and like a app appsec engineer. Yeah. So from like the company perspective, it's very tricky when you're using a vendor product and you get that reported as a vulnerability because mm. the reality yeah. is that all you can do is wait for the vendor to fix it, especially if it's a zero day. So there's no actual, I mean, you can like turn it off or, you know, there are like certain preventative measures you can do, but you can't actually fix it until the company fixes it. And all that you would be kind of expected to do is tell the company, hey, we got this zero day. Do you know about this? And if the company says, no, we don't know about that, then it's like you're in a weird spot where you've kind of ruined the researcher's spoils and also alerted the company. And now the company's like, hey, why don't we know about this? <laughs> um, and it, But like, if you don't report it, then like you're kind of like missing your ethical boundaries. So it, it's very, very tricky. From a researcher perspective, I think you should just report it to the company and then go ham. Like that kind of sets your ethical liability a little bit lower because you've told the company now it's up to the company to fix it. If they fix it really fast and they tell all their customers and the customers update it really fast, then good job. But you've you know notified and now it's kind of fair game for you at least, I think. And then whatever happens, happens, right? If if companies start telling the the vendor that their product is vulnerable and they've been receiving this zero day, then the that's kind of on the vendor now because the vendor hasn't fixed it fast enough, or n- now the customer's hearing about it. So I, I think it all kind of goes back on the vendor, but as a researcher, the main thing that I would want to do is make sure that I've at least told the company and then spray and pray, you know.
0: Yeah, for sure. I I, I want to hear. I've got so many things I want to say about that, Joel, but I want to hear Shubs. I want to hear, <laughs> hear Shubs' opinion first.
5: Yeah, Joel, I agree with you. You report it to the company first, and then you report it to the bug bounty programs. But man, like in the last few weeks, I've even had a situation where, you know, it's been really gut wrenching because. I had this pre RCE, reported it to the vendor, then reported it to a, a handful of bug bounty programs, and um, w- the mistake that uh, you know that 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 was made was I didn't tell this vendor that I had reported it to these bug bounty programs specifically, and as a result, they they wrote this like email to me where it was like you know gut wrenching, and they were like you know AssetNote became the best people we knew to just those guys. And I was like, ah, shit! Like I didn't really mean for that relationship with the vendor, but but this is the game. Like this is this is the zero day zero day game. And at the end of the day, what 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 I find surprising is, I, I mean, their perspective on this, they they're welcome to have their perspective. But the vulnerability in question, if I went to an exploit broker, I think I could have sold it for fifty to one hundred thousand dollars, probably oh, yeah. for that that vulnerability. Now. In this case, it's really, really surprising because in the bug bounties, I must have made like two or four grand. It's like a very Absolutely. small amount sure. of money to be making from this. At the end of the day, we reported the zero day to the vendor for no cost. And this was zero day research that we did that definitely cost us money. Absolutely. So it was our vulnerability that cost us money to find and we report it to the vendor for free. And then we report it to bug bounty programs after we've reported it to the vendor. At mm. that point, I'm really struggling to understand where, like, you know, where we've gone so wrong in this equation. When ultimately we've we've just tried to report it to programs that have this issue on their attack surface. I think there are a few nuances also, just quickly on, on what Joel has mentioned about this, is where like you should try your best not to report zero days in cloud products, like SaaS products onto other companies, because there's really no resolution at all that a company can do. Like you, you talked about the preventative measures. That's possible. You can add a WAF rule. You can shut it down. You can yeah. segregate the network, things like that. When it's like a, a, an XSS on a that's a zero day, in a, there's like very little that a customer can do to prevent that from being exploited on their, their attack surface. So yeah. that's yeah, where yeah. it
1: gets trickier. So, so it's really funny that hold on, it's really funny that you say that because I can think of one or two instances, actually more than that, where a researcher has reported something and they say, "Hey, we've been doing a lot of research and we have this zero day in cloud product. Here's a giant link that just like pops an XSS or something, and you're like, okay, (laughs) now what? (laughs) Like, what do I do?"
0: oh man yeah so i mean like on one hand i feel that and i and i understand what you're coming from as well you know joel with like okay there's not really a lot the company can do but wouldn't you still want to know like it, like you know that, that that's where i kind of say like when people put in their in their policy that they don't want zero day reports i'm like that's really silly you know maybe define something that's like all right we'll pay a medium for or maybe we'll you know, decrease the severity by one. So if it's a crit, you know, we'll drop it to a, you know, a medium or, you know, but something like that. But even in, even in cloud services, you know, with, with the way that same site cookies are working nowadays, if you, if you are able to compromise a domain, uh, you know, a subdomain within a company's, you know, n- domain, then you are able to do so many more different attacks than you would be able to do before. You know, it's a really, it's a, it's a real problem. Um, And so that's kind of why I'm an advocate for doing something like, yes, we'll take the zero day reports, but we're going to maybe lower the bounty, maybe not lower the bounty, depending on the impact. And if we do have to pull it offline, if it's an RCE on a VPN appliance, right, you better pull that shit offline and just tell your employees <laughs> to to get, you know, a, a different way into the company for that time being. Because, you know, if you get popped there, that's very, very high value. And we all know anybody yeah. who's ever conducted an external pen test knows, you know, as soon as you get in and you get to the or external to internal pen test, as soon as you get in, that's it. You know, like there's it, it's almost never segmented in such a way. That you cannot just get literal keys to the kingdom once you get in inside so i don't know that's my thought on it in this next clip from episode 30 we're talking with shubs about advice he has for people building out their recon flow enjoy for the hunter that is building a a reconnaissance setup now um, you know, you having gone through all of the, you know, many, many problems of of, you know, that you face building asset note, what, what kind of advice do you have to to the bug bounty hunter that wants to build a, a continuous reconnaissance platform? Yeah, for their I own use in bug advice, bounty, just to be clear.
5: Yeah. Well, I think like Justin, I remember you came to me um, a couple years ago and you said to me, Hey man, I'm seeing all these people move to Golang. Mm-hmm. Like, do I need to move to Golang as well? Does this is this the right option to make such I remember a great telling you like, mm. yeah and it was just like because I remember at that point I was maybe two three years into the asset note um, adventure and we had migrated everything to Golang from the very beginning so I had experience working in your stack that you're familiar mm-hmm. with which is just like basic Python yep. you know everything's pretty straightforward you can understand it without too much complexity whereas our Golang stack for our enterprise customers which can get quite complex with the number of microservices and things mm-hmm. going on I remember saying to you like choose whatever you're most comfortable with and what you can iterate in quickly on. It doesn't matter if it's Golang or Python or whatever. It could be Visual Basic like Eric does, right? It doesn't really mm-hmm. matter what language right. it is. But but I remember you were like really happy with that because you thought that you had to move to a different language. You thought that you were put into this position where the industry is moving and the industry is changing languages, to every, to everything in Golang for various reasons. So I have to do it too. And... To be frank, I was the one in that position when I started Asino and I decided to move to Golang. There are many benefits that we got out of that, but I'm sure if we worked hard enough, we could get something working in Python as well. Mm. Um, it's it's not really the the distinction of how good the product is gonna be. And I see, I see this trap a lot with, you know, people will rewrite things in a new language. Like they'll say, oh, there's xyz tool in this language i'm going to write it in rust now because rust is so hot right now and everything's amazing in rust but the outcomes are usually the same like usually the outcomes are very similar all the same sometimes there's speed differences acceptable i understand but at the end of the day are you going to learn a whole new language to get that bit of speed difference or are you going to build your systems in a language you're comfortable with that you can iterate quickly on so that's definitely one of the advices that i would give um The other one would be like, really think about your data sources. Um, As much as I would like to say that, you know, our reconnaissance techniques and, and all of that are a huge contributor, there's also a huge element where the data that we have access to is just overpowered compared to other Uh, other people's data sources so that that sort of stuff if you start looking at things like passive dns if you start investigating these things and start understanding where you can get these data sources what these data sources look like how much you're willing to pay for them you're suddenly putting yourself at an immense advantage compared to almost every other bug bounty hunter out there and um i think one last thing is um just have an environment where you can quickly iterate code on when I was first building AssetNote, I did all of my programming in the equivalent of GitHub code build. So back then, there was something called Cloud9, and I-, I used that to do all of my iteration. It was so quick. Like I was building so, so quickly. Today, you've got things like Code Spaces, I think, sorry, in, 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 in GitHub. Yeah. That's an equivalent of what I was using back then um, when I was building the very first iterations of AssetNote. Wow,
0: dude. That was just uh, a treasure trove of of advice there. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I I remember that conversation very clearly. And I just I left that conversation like you said ecstatic, you know, with the results of what you said. And it served me well for the rest of the time, you know, that I was in the recon game, like being able to quickly develop code in Python. It, it was it was invaluable. And I think also one of the great things that that just came out of that conversation for me was appreciation for that, right? Because like if I had gone down the other route and I and I had, you know, written all this Golang code, I might, oh man, I, I used to remember when I used to be able to write code, you know, off the top of my head without even thinking about it in Python. That's that's great. But, you know, and then I would have earned the ability to like, you know, um yeah, appreciate Python. But without having to go to that through that difficulty and that route, you made me aware every time. I wrote Python code quickly how much of a blessing that is and how much of a yeah. you know uh, of a win that was so thank you so much for your advice man that that really that really made
1: a big difference in my recon game in this last clip from episode thirty, Shubs dropped some hot, hot, spicy hacker advice on how to hack IIS servers. He's the master on this. You're not going to want to skip this one. So I, I did have a couple
0: more things that I wanted to ask, um, specifically regarding IIS, um, which is your bread and butter, it seems. Right? You've done a lot of you've done some videos on IIS stuff, which we'll link in the description. And um, what can you tell us about hacking IIS servers? What, what do you have for the
5: people? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think the second you see an IIS server, you should thank God because it's the easiest thing to hack out of all the other web servers that are out there. You should be grateful. You should be grateful that you you've come across the presence of an IIS server. You see that blue page that comes up when you hit an IIS server that that should be your your point in time where you think I'm going to find criticals on this. Oh my board. gosh, I love because, that because because ninety percent of the time, like 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 guys, if you think about every other web server technology. Which other web server technology lets you guess partial files and folder names? There's mm-hmm. nothing out there like that. Like yeah. that that's just ridiculous. And this vulnerability, this issue has existed for like 10 years plus, like it's been around for so long, and it still works on the latest version of Mm. iOS. Like this is not even something that they're thinking about seriously fixing in future versions so far that I've seen. So there's that, right? You've got the ability to see partial file names and folders. With enough reconnaissance, you can figure out the rest of those file names and folders by doing some fuzzing, so on and so forth. Then there's all this other stuff that happens with.NET and specifically with IIS and.NET, where you are able to get a shell if you get local file disclosure. Now, if mm. you if you if you get local mm. file disclosure and you read a web.config file, it has the machine key, the validation key, you're able to escalate that from just that to, to command execution. Again, the, the the only solution for this is you start storing these values in the, in the, in the Windows registry instead of the web.config file. Mm. 90% of the time, companies are storing it in the web.config file. And this is something that, you know, often leads to command execution once you get local file disclosure. Then there's the other aspect of this where when you, when you audit.net um products you've got to deal with this whole idea of windows shares and windows domains so let's say you find an ssrf that ssrf on a oh, dude, server this. on a dot net product is much more than just reaching a web server 9 times out of 10 mm. if they're using path.join then in path.join you can just do backslash backslash uh, and and put in like a Windows share backslash C dollar sign backslash. And suddenly, because of the Windows APIs that are being used for these network requests, Windows willingly shares the NTLM net NTLM hash with your server. So you run responder on your server mm. and suddenly you've escalated an SSRF to a critical, much more critical than just being HTTP requests. So there's stuff like that. Then there's like, you know, I guess there's also this there's also this amazing thing with .NET and IIS where there's like a thousand different ways to drop a shell. Like when you drop wow. shells in IIS and .NET, you can drop shells with web.configs, with ASCX files, with ASHX files, with ASPX files. You can oh, drop shells that. in so many different ways. It's it's beautiful. And it's really great to be able to to, to hack on, 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 on .NET IIS servers. And one last yeah. thing that I love, one last thing is... If you're exploiting an XXE in in, an, in a .NET application, there is an XXE payload that is universal for Windows that uses a a DTD file that's within the Windows file system that's yeah. always present in the Windows file system that will nine times out of ten that you leak file contents when you probably shouldn't be able to. Dude, so th- these that, are all the different things.
0: That's that's sick, and I I want that payload. We're I'm gonna make a note right now. Get get the XXE. <laughs> Payload from Shubs uh, because that that seems really helpful. I've seen some stuff floating around, but it'd be nice to have it here. You know, and link it down in the description for the people that are interested. Dude. That, that was such a treasure trove of, of knowledge. I, I feel like, dude, I'm so lucky to be able to have you on here because I just like throw a little like, you know, question out there. And then there's just like, boom, gold, boom, gold, boom, gold. And we were actually just talking about the, um, you know, the, the share paths last week and how crazy it is that you get those NTLM hashes um, and and that you can interact with shares, you know, when you have SSRF as well. Um, so that's that's really cool. Really cool stuff, um, and definitely for those of you that haven't hacked on IAS stuff, check out short, uh, check out Shortscan, um, Bitquarks, uh, you know tilde enumeration tool, and then also read all of the write-ups that we'll link below uh, for Shubs on IAS related stuff. Because, um, like you said, man, I get excited when I see that that blue page, and I think most other hackers uh, should as well. Um, that's that's all I had on the list for today. Um, Shubs, do you have anything else you wanna you wanna share? Anything you wanna talk about? Where can we find you on on socials as well?
5: Uh, just two last things I want to share, and then we oh, can yeah. wrap it up. Great. One of them is when you see the blue page on IAS, do not skip it, please. Yes. There's something there. Like there's, there's no reason they've just spun up an IIS server for no reason. Like, like they, they, they wouldn't just do that. Most companies have something there. There is something there. Please keep, keep looking, keep finding it, whatever. There's something there. And the second thing is, um, just one other lesser known technique in IIS is mm. virtual directory, um, virtual, like, uh, path traversal to traverse into different w- virtual servers via virtual directories. So in IIS, you can set up directories that are pointing to different servers. And if you use path traversal within those directories, you can see the web root of different servers. This is something that I've found um, quite common in IIS deployments that are complex. So they'll have slash SSO pointing to 10.1.1.1. But it's pointing to 10.1.1.1 slash SSO. So you can go slash SSO dot dot percentage 2F. And then that will route you to 10.1.1.1 to the dock route. Ah, um, okay, so, so
0: it's your path traversing on the back-end server in the reverse path. That's right. Okay. That's right, yeah, this is
5: similar to that's Sam an, That's an
1: IIS behavior specifically?
5: Yes, this is an IAS behavior specifically. This is very similar to Sam Curry's secondary context right, work. Right. Um, but 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 then this uh, this can lead to a lot of crazy vulnerabilities because in many cases they don't expect you to be able to access the doc route of 10.1.1 mm. one. Mm. And then you can just brute force and find whatever you want and 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 go from there. So that's the last tip that I, I don't think is publicly talked about that much. So just want to give that to your audience as well.
0: Alrighty, the next episode we have up on the docket is episode 37, Tokyo Hacking, an interview with Lupin. This is a great clip where we're talking about JS Weasel and Cursor, two awesome smart JavaScript analysis plugins for VS Code. And we also cover how to take that JS data and build great word lists for things like caravoyance or REST API hacking. Enjoy. You mentioned a a when we were walking <laughs> down the street yes. to the to the freaking uh, shrine earlier today to meet <laughs> up with friends. Um, you know, you mentioned that there was this VS Code uh, plugin that that yeah. you you've been using, um, and I imagine it actually would work in, well in conjunction with JS Weasel. Exactly. And yeah, yeah could you talk a little bit about that because that was a really
7: interesting product? Yeah. So uh, I saw uh, the tweet of Corbin that mm-hmm. basically used JS Weasel uh, with Cursor, and Cursor is like a wrapper around VS Code. Uh, since VS Code is mostly open source. And basically, they are embedding uh, GPT-4 inside uh, VS Code, oh, and wow. you can directly ask questions about your code base. Mm-hmm. What's okay. really interesting is that you can pay um, the subscription, but you can also directly natively use your uh, GPT-4 API key. So you okay. directly pay to OpenAI, mm-hmm. and no need to go through their servers. Okay. Wow. And um, it's so amazing! Like uh, right now, I, I'm using it to do uh, JavaScript analysis on uh, Google. That they, they use like a lot of RPC weird calls. Like it's horrible proprietary protocol. Yeah. And basically, I'm going like, okay, that's the edge point of uh, the request, right? So what are the parameters? Because they are like so embedded in one function to another function to another function. And basically, I'm just asking the AI. Um, Tell me which other function you want context to so I can provide it to you and we can reconstruct the request. And I did that like maybe five, six times. And at one point, I just got the request mm-hmm. that I needed to send. Wow. And then like the protobuf request. And I was like, Oh, that's amazing. And it
1: just built it automatically.
7: For- yeah. Wow. And so I use Swizzle to detect, uh, which like, like all the endpoints you did some automation right. also to get right. the ideas right. And then you just ask cursor, okay explain to me this code and this is the job like instead of having like six to seven hours of code review you right. do it like maybe in two hours it's so great i love it
1: wow it's really interesting like i think this is something before ai or like GPT was really yeah m- more you know before it was as as flushed out as it is this would be something that you might have like code or maybe sure. some more of a technical tool be doing but this the approach is basically just feeding it into ai and saying hey yeah what do I need to know about this? It's so much more powerful because it can do everything just like in an instant where it just analyzes this huge chunk of data and is able to just parse it and tell you, oh yeah, here's what you need to know. I'm,
0: I'm, a little, I'm a little confused about how that works though because I feel like the code base would extend past the context window. Any, um, any do, do either of you guys know how that works or is it with GPT-4 like 8K or something? I don't know.
7: Um, so uh, basically when I use it, I select the lines of code I wanted to, to interpret. Okay. Uh, but they natively use a way to uh, compress the file. And basically mm. they have like some kind of, if I understood correctly, a search engine on the client side the, uh, that depending on the uh, question will go look for the code before and uh, then giving the context to uh, open ai so you do not have to give everything i see I see. A, a bit like bing search is doing like the search engine uh, does the first request right. and then give the data back to open ai and open ai will uh context. Right? I see. I see. Yeah. I,
1: that's really interesting. Cause like what you meant, we were talking earlier about like tokens yeah. and, and sort of how like AI looks at input as tokens and it splits sure. it up into different segments that it can understand better and sort of looks at those pieces individually and then we'll build like the context together. And I think that's like what you said, like it, it the way that it parses that is kind of counter counterintuitive because yeah. you might think like, Oh, you know, I can't feed a giant filing, but you can, because it, it can do some more processing magic on it than than it would
7: before? Um, I mean, like LLM are trained on so many data points that actually they can complete context. Uh, So if you say um, this function passes something, they can guess. Uh, It's not like the, the more accurate way to do it, but I think the cursor team did a great job about knowing what to feed to the AI and knowing like what, that I already know, so you you can like compress as much as possible the tokens to not you know pay the eight k subscription. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right.
0: Um, yeah, and and I think combining those two tools together, JS Weasel and and uh, yeah. was it cursor cursor? cursor. Yeah. Okay, like mouse cursor. Yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, combining those two tools together is a really powerful combo. So shout out to Corbin for for yeah. that one. Um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, i'm I'm definitely I'm definitely interested to see where all that goes. And Js Weasel, uh, I think we'll probably cover in a little bit more detail on a different episode. Um, but i I booted it up for the first time during this live hacking event, and I've been using it, and uh, it's really cool to see it do automatically what we talked about, you know, yep. breaking out those those um, uh, file, webpacked js files and having it, you know drop all of the things there um but i'm wondering i don't know if you've used it joel but for for you lupin um i'm wondering uh how you've been using the tool because for me i've been having a little bit of a difficulty with and i talked to charlie about this and i think he's fixing it but um i've been having a little bit of difficulty with identifying the portions of the js code that i really want to analyze because there's not a search function presently yeah um and so i mean do do you do you have that same struggle have you worked around it what how how are you using the tool currently
7: yeah um the the tool misses like a search uh function uh yeah that, that that's definitely something uh that that needs to be implemented um, the way I use it is more uh, about like um, knowing the attack surface mm-hmm. and the constructing uh, word list out mm-hmm. of it so uh, basically I had um, uh, this GraphQL uh, um, API uh, mm-hmm. that was um, behind authentication mm-hmm. and so it was just for admins right, right. but you could with a low privileged user just because uh, you know cookies are you could make uh, simple requests to it but without authorization of course okay. and um the introspection wasn't turned on okay. so how do you know which queries do you do you go to the js files right, right? and what i did with just weasel that was awesome it listed all the queries. I just copied all the queries and uh, generated word lists yeah. that I gave to Clairvoyance. Right. Uh, and basically, uh, Clairvoyance would try to brute force the um, the schema, the GraphQL schema right. and give it back to you. And so then I fed the 70 MO, <laughs> like it was a big schema uh, to GraphQL Voyager. And I had like everything, every call that it was being made because they like, in when there is a graph here everything is always documented in the front end i don't know why there is uh, some libraries that even have introspection inside the js oh, really? like if it's not turned on, go check the js and you can copy the introspection and paste it just because they forgot no to turn, uh, turn, out, uh, turn a flag i've and never I seen like, that yeah I, I've, I've seen like a lot of times and it's so interesting
0: um so so it's so funny you mention that because yeah. I literally did the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, except I didn't use JS Weasel for it. I used my own parsing script to, sure. uh, you know, uh, expand the Webpack files. Yeah, and then I did exactly that. I I took a regex. I pulled every string that was compliant with uh, GraphQL. Yeah. Um, you know naming standards essentially yeah. for for queries and for um, for field names and that sort of thing. And I put it all in a word list and I fed it to clairvoyance um, and For those of you that are listening that aren 't familiar we'll link it down below but clairvoyance is a is a um, is a tool that uh, I guess sort of plays on the problem with a GraphQL where they will recommend you yeah. uh, fields exactly. if you have the improperly uh, defined fields so uh, you know let 's say you there 's a field called store. And you know, I, sometimes it's even like like pretty pretty far. Like you might yeah. even get away with like sport and it may be like, did you mean store? Yeah um, it, and they'll it, tell you.
7: It really depends on the back end. Yeah. Uh, so depending on the language, uh yeah. they, you, you can set up uh, the amount of token that needs to to be uh the same. So oh, really oh interesting. Some, yeah, so sometimes it's like two tokens apart, so two letters, sometimes mm-hmm. it's three, four. Uh and they can set up that on the back end side and depending on the framework, they will have uh, a different kind of uh, far away or mm. not you know oh, that's, yeah well i mean it's really interesting
1: that you mentioned that 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 strategy with graphql because i was i was going to say the same thing about not even just graphql but same thing with api requests like if yes if you're pulling apart those webpack uh, files and the lazy loaded files not only will you see the endpoints but you also see how they're being used where's yeah. that data coming from and one of the really powerful things about having all of that just right in front of you in javascript it's yeah. just like Android apps where, you know, you can decompile it, you can see how everything is working like right in front of you. You can do the same thing with the JavaScript. All you have to do is pull it apart. You can see, oh, it's making a post request and it builds the body with these fields that are named this and that data comes from here. It's a parameter and that's fed in through here and you can track it all and you can see sort of how that data flows through the application to get to that request and you can piece it together without ever having used the application at all. You can do it completely from static analysis. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All righty, next up is episode 45, the OG bug bounty king, Franz Rosen. What an episode that was. In the segment that we chose, we're talking about a lot of good stuff, but primarily we're talking about app cache, service workers, cookie stuffing, and post message. Specifically, I remember having an excellent conversation with Franz surrounding chaining CRLF injections with service workers, uh, which resulted in some sort of novel ideas I haven't heard before. So hope you guys enjoy it. Bringing us back on track to the to the hacking stuff, I did want to talk about one of my favorite um, talks that you've ever done, which just essentially looked like prophecy to me looking back in, in the past, which is your Attacking Modern Web Technologies talk oh, that you did yeah. in 2018, mm-hmm. um, uh, almost exactly five years ago. Yeah. Um, and attacking modern web technologies, there were so many awesome pieces to this. There was um, app caches and service workers. Uh, you know, there was post message stuff. Yeah. There was upload I mean, policies. Uh, all, yeah, yeah the, the policies, the S3 mm. policies, all sorts of stuff all over the place. So, um, once again, mandatory mandatory reading for anybody who's listening. Um, the crazy thing about to me about this talk is like this is still the stuff that we're talking about Absolutely. today. Like, yes. and is, this it's was five applicable. years ago, right? Yes,
6: and, it's still applicable. Yeah, yeah. Like, I find bugs, like, like I, sometimes I need to go back to those slides yeah. because I find bugs for those things.
0: Exactly. They and, have
6: extremely long lifespan, those blog posts. Yeah. I'm and, surprised myself and, that it's, like, still working. And this
0: is something that's really, I think, a key listen and also help, helps for your... For your brand as well, Franz is that Franz was was talking about this stuff, not not only doing this stuff, but talking about it publicly in 2018, five years ago. And I, I we talk about post message still being an underserved technology even 100%. to this day. So keep an eye on anything Franz releases because it, it, it will very <laughs> sure. likely be applicable for the future. Um, uh, so talk to me a little bit about uh, app cache and and service worker stuff, and then. Um, in conjunction with that the beauty of the synergies between cookie stuffing and
6: and these technologies yeah so I think the, 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 the interesting part with the app cache uh, that that happened there there were there were many many fun things with it but uh, my aspect of it was that I had a really old Dropbox account and the old Dropbox account were like grandfathered into Uh, a place where you could actually host websites on, on uh, Dropbox user content.com. And and if you created a new Dropbox account back then, you couldn't really run your own, like you couldn't render HTML pages and stuff. But if you had a a legacy Dropbox account, you could, Hmm. but it was very limited into what you could actually uh, trigger with it uh, or like get it to, to um, uh, render. Um, And, I came to the conclusion that, like, what can I do with an XSS or running an XSS on on Dropbox user content? And I I remember I was talking with Matthias then, and, like, what can we do? Like, can we do something? And we came to the conclusion, like, okay, cookie stuffing we can do, so you can make Mm. it, like, unable to actually load because you're filling up the cookie jar so much, so when you're making a request later on, it will fail. So so
0: question here. So essentially what was happening is you were able to host your uh you know attacker controlled content on a domain with with other attack you know victim content on, on yeah, that same so, domain right
6: yeah exactly what happened was you got like a user directory on dropbox user content that you could host data on uh and then you could uh, i think it was that Oh, I Whenever can, I can you see sh-
0: it now, and I'll, I'll reference it. Yeah. It's slide 15 for any of those uh, of you that yeah. are following along here. Um, you know, he's got dldropboxusercontent.com slash you, and then the user ID, and yes. then wherever you would update stuff. And you got the XSS, not by uploading an HTML file, but by using... Uh, SVG.
6: Yeah, right, well, I think it was an XML. No, XML. XML, XML, yeah. you're right, you're right. Yep. Yes, XML. Yeah, so that was the thing. Uh, everything else was like, you know, getting downloaded sure, and sure, sure, position sure. uh, attachment. Uh, but that was the way, but, but if you had a new Dropbox account, you would never get the URL to, to you uh, uh, Dropbox user user content. It was only the legacy Dropbox account. That's that really had cool. That feature enabled. Um, so that was the, you know, the, the weird part first with, with having that. So we knew that we could do cookie stuffing and what would happen then if, if somebody else sent a link uh, that would like four or four and uh, four of, Four or five or something. I, yeah. I
8: or five, five zero something.
0: Four eleven, uh, I think
6: yeah, maybe actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, le- so
0: that exactly. concept of of um, cookie stuffing. I learned that from, from you and from File Descriptor. And, and so i I think it was File
6: Descriptor that, that well, I learned it from as It was well. from...
0: I was going to ask, where did yeah. you get that knowledge? And of course, it goes so, back uh, to another legend, yeah. File
6: Descriptor. Yeah, File Descriptor, man. And and the funny thing with this bug was that I, I think Matthias was the one mentioning... We're coming back to File Descriptor. So yeah. he mentioned AppCache and I yeah. started reading up on what AppCache was doing and Matthias as well. And we started like playing with that and realized that we could... You know, host, uh, reference a manifest in, to, in the XML file. That manifest would then be loaded and that manifest could be like a regular text or whatever. Sure. And that text could contain and say that if, if you're unable to reach this website, you should have a fallback, your fallback page of this and that. Sure. Because the whole app cache thing was based on you running an app and you're going offline with your cell phone. So you need to, if you reload the page, you can still visit it. (laughs) This is crazy. Uh, And absolutely crazy. And what happened was that we realized that in our user path, we could put an HTML file or an XML file. And we could say that this is the one that should be loaded if you can't reach the website. And then we realized, okay, does the cookie stuffing result in this thing? And it turns out that yes. So we cookie stuffed and made sure that if you clicked on any other link, we would just steal the URL and then steal the the page of that signed URL ourselves. That's amazing. But the weird part of us that when we did this uh, blog post, I don't know exactly date wise. So our bug to Dropbox was here and then here. Yeah. (laughs) And then File Descriptor comes out with a talk uh, explaining this bug. And we were like, but we, what? We, what? So that, that was when we wanted, we got the Dropbox, uh, bug published so we could show that we also figured this That's out. That's crazy. Uh, and, and so, so he actually did a talk on, I think on OWASP, OASP talk or, no or way. something else, but, and so w- same we, conference. Like, we came <laughs> to the same kind of conclusion, yeah. uh, which was great. So I wanted to like highlight that, that like sometimes people can like figure out the same kind of things at the same time. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, like, there's like the new thing, I, I think I'm mentioning it as well. like service workers was a was a like a, a replacement for app cache. But yeah. back then, I think it was like very hard to like get the, a service worker to work because yeah, you, you needed to have like a specific header on the service worker file to allow it to run as a service worker. And there were a lot of like, if this and that's that, that had to work uh, to make it actually yeah. exploitable. It,
0: it seems like there's there's definitely been some change in that area now. And yeah. so, um, you know, I've definitely seen service workers used in, in lots of different different contexts. I believe you, and I, I always have to, you know, go back yeah. and look at it. But I, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I, I'm 99% sure that service workers can be installed without a header now and the header that oh, wow. if you do supply an http response header what that will allow you to do is reassign the uh the root existing. path the the oh, okay. the um authority for that service worker so if you mm. you know even though you're installing the yeah. service worker at like slash js slash sj dot js or whatever or sw.js um yeah. then then you know you would normally just have authority for the slash js directory but if you're able to serve that service worker allowed I think header um then you can get uh, and say, hey, give it permission to slash. Then mm. you can now affect all the resources inside wrong, of wrong slash. Wrong everywhere. Um, nice. And it's just, it's such an interesting technology, especially when you pair it with something like uh, subdomain takeover or yes. yeah, or sure. um, you know uh, file upload, because you can gain sort of uh, sort of a persistence in the browser as well um, yeah. using service workers. And and um, you know that that. Ex- We've seen this also with uh, Truffle Security released a, a tool called of course. I'm not sure if you've seen it, Franz, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's it's um, it uses a service worker in the background to uh, gain more time to be able to attack different um, websites that have vulnerable course configurations. Mm-hmm. Even if yeah. you just visit the page for just an instant, you know. So there's so mm-hmm. many um, I think applicable, uh, you know exploitation scenarios for service workers um, yeah. that that we, we got to keep our eye on because they, they have tremendous impact
6: yeah no and I agree but like I, I guess the core concept first is like you need to have an XSS to begin with yes and and then you probably need to have arguments on why that XSS wasn't important uh, in the beginning and I sure. guess like storage uh, like a bucket storage is a is a it's a good argument on Like an XSS there doesn't do anything, but if you have persistence, you can like show. And I think that was what the the bug showed was like, it's a sandbox domain. It doesn't have any impact, but you have persistence. And and that's the way to like gain access to other URLs and stuff.
0: I just thought about something, Franz. You know, one of Mm -hmm. the things we're going to talk about a little bit later, assuming we don't have to cut for time, is this middleware misconfigurations that you, you talked about. So what if we change that, right? Like we we yeah. changed the middleware misconfiguration, um, and and so now we we can use that to hit a different bucket on the. So just to be, I'm going to give the TLDR of the of the middleware misconfiguration thing. If you if you essentially with some nginx configurations, if you hit it, if you put a bunch of escape characters, you know, um, new lines and stuff like that in the URL, and they have some specific proxy pass rules, um, then you will be able to re- rewrite the rest of the request and hit other S3 buckets or other yeah. backend entities. And host
6: your own content. Basically. Exactly. So what if we, yeah.
0: we chained that with service workers, right? Um, sure. Where you could then hit your own S3 bucket and, and issue. But I'm, I'm wondering... Do I mean, you,
6: you still have stored, stored XSS, I guess. Like, somebody needs to visit your URL still and and that one would still make you host whatever content you want on that website so the, but the the thing you're gaining is the, persi- the the persistent thing right. that you can actually make it load but they still need to visit it once can you uh, can
0: you uh, i'm wondering though can you set h- response headers in S3 yeah
6: uh, it depends if it's S3 website you can some of them uh but i mean you could also if it's s three website, you can still redirect it to whenever. Like and d- depending on like the CSP, for example, you can still redirect it elsewhere. I don't know if that helps you, though.
0: no. no, because what I'm thinking is, like, wouldn't no. it be cool if we could, insert some some new line characters overwrite the the backend bucket right have the bucket serve a a yep. service worker and then insert the service worker header to slash so now
1: so that oh, yeah. we re, mm-hmm.
0: we we gain you know that service worker authority um, yeah. And get XSS stored XSS on every single page that yeah. the user visits within the browser. I think that could yeah. be really cool. I mean,
6: S3 website would uh, allow you to do this if it's if an S3 website uh, is if it's proxying you to S3 website and you can inject something to modify what bucket yeah. it's going to serve as a website. You can inject whatever. Header I guess you it want depends on the
0: it. host because I wonder. I wonder if if we are hitting. So let's say they're sending a request to you know whatever.s3.amazonaws.com, and then we overwrite the host header on that, I wonder if it uses that same load balancer, Origin IP, for you no. to, to insert a header to hit S3 websites. Like, if you no. if you put in, a, it no. doesn't. Okay.
6: <laughs> no. Uh, Bummer. S3 website is also quirky because it only responds on HTTP and not HTTPS. Oh, what? Uh, I have no idea why. I think it has something to do with, like, you're supposed to put it behind something else, kind of cloud front or whatever. But so th- they they don't have the same load balancer and you can't really get to S3 website from S3, as far as I know. Weird. Least.
0: Yeah, that's, that's yeah. definitely... It's very area.
6: isolated. It's like a totally... It's like an overlay over S3. It's like S3 website is like its own thing that renders whatever you want, basically.
0: Yeah. We'll definitely have to research that a yeah, little bit more. Sure. In depth. The, the other area that yeah. I was thinking that this could be interesting is with CRLF injection uh, and, into the response headers, right? If you can do response splitting,
6: assign the service worker a loud header. Then you can make a service worker out of the response splitting. Yeah, sure. That would be pretty but lit, You need right? something to load it. I mean, you could probably make two CRLF, one CRLF to load a fake document and one CRLF that loads... A fake service worker with the header to install it absolutely that should work yeah sure that's that's yeah. that's some good <laughs> nice. that's some good yeah. shit right there um yeah. that's fun that, then you get persistence
0: yeah uh, huh I'm just, Interesting. I'm, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about all the possibilities that. I it.
1: can see the gears turning in just yeah, 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 uh, like, yeah, as soon as he hangs up, he's, gonna, he's huh, got three programs he's to go look at. But then really you, then you,
6: and then you can probably, you know, escalate it to, you know, steal access tokens and stuff. And yeah, I mean, uh, you can probably do things with that. And it, it makes
0: it a lot more, it makes it, I mean it's a little bit interesting right because technically what that could result in then is we could get plain we could leak the user's plain text password without user interaction right because i like like you said what what are we actually uh, what do we actually, what are we actually yeah. gain from this because at that point if we have stored xss right then we can just open up whatever pages we want in an iframe and then do whatever we want right and do whatever yeah, yeah. but but one of the things that we can't do is is without more entry intrus- user interaction is leak the user's plain text password assuming they don't have any yeah, crazy thing
6: yeah. but but due to the persistence you can uh, you can get them to yeah
0: sure which which really escalates pretty much any and then I guess it's
6: you, a reflected more than uh, stored uh, but you turn it into more you, of a store, a client-side store. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a client-side yeah. stored XSS. Yeah, client-side store. That's
0: XSS. that's really interesting. Yeah. And then and then yeah. this yeah. this is a really good um, ATO mechanism because some, especially if you then proceed to cookie bomb, like a, a specific path that that issues you know an auth token or something like that Mm -hmm. it forces the user to to clear their cookies and re-auth the next time that they they go into the application and at that point if you've got the service worker you can hijack the 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 plain text password yeah we get that this is is some good i didn't get you on this podcast more often this is great Um, no, no no this is really good okay so um Wow, as much as I would like to sit there and just uh, think on that for the next little while, <laughs> let's let's try to keep rolling. Um, it's probably a sin, but I'm going to skip this whole uh, section on um, S3 policies and cloud policy uploads, which is a really awesome part of, of the Attacking Modern Web Technologies uh, talk. And I'm going to jump to something that we've talked a little bit more about on the podcast uh, often, which is um, the the post-message stuff. Um, yeah. So... Uh, how did you? Because I <laughs> once again, you're one of the one of the first people that I, I, you know, sort of introduced me to post message stuff. Yeah. Where Where did you? How did you come up with this? And then what What was it like? You know, sort of seeing this. Did somebody else's research spur this thought in you, or was it just well, how does this work? No. Sort of. Uh,
6: that's That's a really good. Do you remember? Question, I guess yeah. is the first. No, question I, yeah. I don't. I actually don't hundred percent remember. Yeah. Where I think, I think like this. I think there were examples of vulnerable cases already. Post- sure. Like I wasn't the one showing that you can exploit it. Uh, but I started to, so I think I did a lot of focus back then on, I think it was Dropbox. Sure. Maybe. Yeah. And I think it was, so it was also like payment providers. There was something, because payment providers tend to do a lot of, and you had to talk yourself yeah. about it. Yeah. 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 And, and what happened was that there was a, as a, as a huge amount of payment providers that started moving over to post message. And you always had a really hard part finding all the post message listeners. So as I did back then, I was discussing with Matthias, like, wh- how, how do we figure these things out? Mm. and and we came to the conclusion that like okay probably an extension and then i sat down and wrote a bunch of like you know inside iframes deep you know a post message that that get listeners that get triggers by actions and and a lot of different i think it's still in the repository there's like an example.html with a bunch of listeners and and just to like try to figure out what we can do about it and I, i i made my first uh, version of the, of the extension and like, okay, this will be usable. Like, oh, just the number, even though you have like five iframes deep, a listener, the number counter on the post message listener Chrome extension will still, you know, increase, Mm. uh, versus looking at the, the source, uh, events, global events, and you only see the iframe you're currently selected. Yeah. I was like, this is a terrible functionality. Uh, so I made my first version of this, and I, I talked with the Google team because I told them like, why can't you just like, I don't want to start building an extension. Like, can't you just fix so you can see all the listeners in all iframes? Yeah. And they were like, no, this is how it's supposed to be, and blah blah blah. And it's, like, it's okay. terrible, and it's something something yeah. that I
0: talked about in my talk as well. But like, yeah, you got to do your
6: due in in.
0: You still even have to do your due diligence to go and show where all of the. You know, to to go suss all of the listeners because something may not be utilizing that listener, right? So yes. in that case, it won't show up in post message tracker. Yeah. So you've still yeah. got to go through and do it. One of the, and, you know, it's my fault is as, as well because I haven't contributed to that nice private repo you put me on for for, yeah. for post message tracker. But no I think it would be really cool to to. Add a, a line that that shows every time a post message tracker is registered and where it's registered. Yep. So, yep. You, so you, you know, just like you get a request where, it, you know, you get a, a log in your console when it gets sent yeah. through, um, yeah. when a post message is sent through, you can also yeah. get a log when one is registered so you can know, okay, well, the, you know, my... Uh, child Windows third iframe yes. has registered a launched uh, a, a, yeah yeah, a yeah listener that and, that could be really and, cool because that attack surface is all over the place like you mentioned
6: absolutely and and I would say the most common ones I found nowadays are the ones not initiated from, from start but by yeah. action yeah so they they just because you so I have an example in one talk I did on, in Amsterdam for like a live hacking event. Basically, what happened was that when you clicked on upload document, there was a listener started at ah. that action. And then you could do whatever you could basically read, whatever document you uploaded, you could read it uh, uh, from the sandbox. Uh, but, but so there's a bunch of those like action based listeners that gets triggered uh, by things. And what i've seen late, like lately also i, I think one of the biggest uh, tricks that uh, up my sleeve with the post listener was the unpacking of the wrappers yeah uh, so basically everything is wrapped through new, new relic or roll bar or yeah. uh, there's a bunch of those but and jquery also has its own wrapper but the way of figuring out how to bypass the wrapper and then go directly to the function so you can get like the real function that is actually being triggered. That was, I think, the, the golden nugget in, in the extension that is that, that was really helpful. And uh, what I've seen lately now is like people using message ports, which is like yeah. an addition to, to post message where you send an initial post message with a port and that port can then be, you know, you can shuffle that port between iframes, uh, but the one having the port is the one getting the messages. Yeah, um, dude, I'm so glad so- you
0: mentioned that because I just found my first, you know, bug using mm-hmm. message ports in a live hacking event. Maybe, well, I won't say exactly when because because that'll give it away. Nah, but yeah. but within yeah. the past year, right? Um, yeah. And and it was uh, it was very interesting. And I think one of the things that that was crazy there is it. it, it Sometimes people will just get a port and then they'll just shove data into it without doing yes. you know or, or origin checks or anything like that too. No, no, and no. so exactly. you know it, it actually even creates more complexity and more room for vulnerabilities yeah. when you when you're utilizing the message port stuff.
6: Yeah, and it's fun because you can you can have a message port from one little iframe and if you get hold of that message port, you can take it into a different iframe and then the 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 window thinking it sends sends it to the iframe it's actually sending it cross domain somewhere else so yeah that message port can be you can juggle that message port wherever you want which is quite, kind of funny that it's like just a connection it's basically like a a socket yeah. that you can that shuffles data it's i'm
0: also kind of surprised that we haven't seen more post message based tooling out there like maybe I'm just naive, but your post message tracker is pretty much the only extension that I've seen that, yeah. that does anything like this. So, um, one, thanks for doing
6: that because otherwise yeah. we would have no introspection. Yeah. I use into it. This. I use it every day myself. it's yeah. my, the, the only probably extension I use myself and every, every day I'm looking at it. So it's like, I'm, it's a good example of like writing something that would yeah. you, you would use yourself. Yeah. Uh, and it's 100% like that. Like it, it doesn't go a day without me looking at I'd,
0: it. I I'd kind of like also to just to highlight, you know, w- the importance of understanding browser mechanics and stuff like that. So let's say for yeah. example, you 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 know, post message stuff was just coming out or something like that, right? And you go to a page and you see a, a, a an iframe open up or or not an iframe, a pop-up, you know, open up. And it does something and then it, you know, that change somehow seems to appear back on the, on the original window. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: And you don't see any HTTP requests. So it's not pushing it out to the server and yes. not coming back. Right. So you're like, wait a second. How the heck is this working? Cause if you have a, an understanding of browser mechanics, you, you know, yes. y- you would need, you need some sort of reference to pass it and that sort of thing. Yeah. Same um,
6: origin kind of works still. Yeah. Same origin so, is fine for that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's important to understand, you know, if it's happening cross-origin like that, you can't just, you know, say parent... You know, or opener dot, you know, window, you know, whatever, and just define variables or trigger callbacks in the parent window, if it's cross origin. So, so having a strong understanding of same origin policy, having a strong um, understanding of, of um, window references, you know, those sort of things are essential to be able to identify these sort of issues,
6: um,
0: as the technology evolves.
6: Absolutely, so, and I think I one one thing that I, I I did some talks on it, but I think is it, there will be a lot more bugs on it. It's it's client side race conditions with post message. I, I think that's I think I was early on with it, uh, yeah. but I think that there are much more places to investigate that might be similarly vulnerable to it uh, i
0: same. i i don't have so i've got a couple client-side race conditions um mm-hmm. in place um it, it, bugs that i have found and i'm actually doing some research on them right now uh, mm-hmm. I, nice. which i'll share with you after this after this chat um and maybe we can collab on it because mm-hmm. uh the implications of it are pretty gnarly um but uh y- It's, I need to do what you did with a lot of 30 dancing and just like, you know, work through all the, all the pathways, uh, work with all the pathways to it. But yeah, I mean, there's so many things that can be said about that one piece that is not super relevant to the, to the, um, to the bug that the, or to the research that I'm talking about is the, the concept of client side race conditions via post message when, um, one of the pr- people is using JSON.parse. So the, mm-hmm. the thing about JSON.parse is that it, it, when you're parsing that, that JSON data from a string back into a JSON object, yep. that takes computational power to to load up all those objects, right? So Mm -hmm. I had a scenario when I was getting a post message at two different windows at the same time, right? And Mm -hmm. I needed to be... So this window was relay... The first window that would receive the post message was relaying it to me, the attacker. But then that first window would respond to the post message and set some configuration settings, right? So I had to...
6: Receive it. You needed the message to be first, yeah. but you also needed to read it faster than the other. Exactly.
0: One. So the first, the first window <laughs> that
6: received it was yeah. using JSON parsing. Yeah, string instead, matching, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. I
0: used mm-hmm. I used just substring. Right to extract yeah. this this variable that I needed ID. to send yeah. the message, and nice. was able to win the race back to the first window. Oh, that's um, awesome! And and so uh, that's a that's a cool little little tip, I love, tip I love for those, the listeners. There. Those things
6: are are beautiful. JSON
0: parse is a little bit um, computationally yeah. intense also then.
6: also I think like the whole concept of sending uh, object like arbitrary objects. I know Filescriptor made one of those using Blob. Yeah, uh, but there are there are a bunch like you can send a regex object. Yeah, uh, and and so there is a bunch of these like if this is not a string kind of bugs that you can find just because you're sending a completely different object with post message. Uh, yeah. I think it's like file blob regex. There's a bunch more that you can uh, you can send over.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. Actually, I got to look you know? into that, and I know that yeah. some some providers have implemented frameworks where like serialization and deserialization oh, yeah. frameworks yeah. that
6: just make my yeah. life
0: terrible they <laughs> it, are crazy i know yeah. i know
6: exactly what you mean i've seen those as well yeah uh, it takes a lot lot of time but sometimes in those cases i, I rather look for the the sinks first exactly or like like is, is it even you know can or I actually time do to go something down this fun? path yeah exactly. yeah no totally yeah, th- those are tricky
1: for our last interview clip, this is with Mr. Fall Down the Well himself, <laughs> Matthias of Liedenbrunn Carlson. Uh, this is just a spectacular part of the episode where he talks all about XSLT and MXSS, mutation XSS, and all the sorts of tooling and interesting intricacies with care sets and all sorts of really, really cool stuff. Make sure to check this one out. Char sets. No? Char sets. Char-sets? Probably Char-sets.
0: <laughs> Either way, enjoy okay. the episode. <laughs> so, a part of my research for the technical shit section is um, going through every tweet you've ever tweeted and finding all the interesting stuff and uh, talk, getting ready to talk about that. So, you put out this tool, uh, hack a planet Ten. Uh, no,
8: it's it's hack the planet in Swedish. Can you say it? Hack the planet.
0: Hacka planeten. <laughs> planeten. Yes. I don't know, man. So, uh, it's a little Swedish update. That's great. You own that domain, the .se domain, and uh, HTML parse in it. This is super awesome. So essentially, what it does, you go to this this thing here, you submit an HTML document, and then it runs DOM Purify on it, it, and it puts it through all of these um, different server side HTML renderers and shows you the result Um, so tell me why you did this and can you well first explain you're looking for mutation XSS here apparently why are you looking for mutation XSS and what is mutation XSS okay
8: so mutation XSS is like if you take a payload and just give it to the browser no, no alert box will pop Essentially, mm-hmm. but if you put it through some parser first, like even one that's inside of the browser itself, which is MSS, like right inner HTML uh setting or uh, like the DOM parser, um etc. And then it will essentially try to fix errors um, in the markup, and while inserting those fixes, it actually turns it into like success, let's say.
0: So, so if I'm understanding correctly, the browser or the the sort of I guess DOM rendering engine, whatever it is, it could be mm-hmm. a server side HTML parser, it could be a browser, it could be you know some other modif- modification within the browser. When yeah. you give it some HTML document that is not spec compliant, typically, right? You know, yeah. It, yeah. it it will look at this thing and say, okay, can't render this because it's not spec compliant. Let me see what I can do to fix it. And when it does yeah. that. It will inadvertently cause XSS. Is that right? Yeah,
8: that's exactly right. It's a bug in the I'll fix your bad markup. Lo- love off.
0: that. Thank you for your help, uh, <laughs> browsers and DOM renders all around. We we love that you we can rely on you for this sort of thing. So so what was the motivation for this tool, man? What did you why did you build this, and what mm. kind of stuff have you been finding with it?
8: Well, the motivation was it actually had nothing to do with XSS, <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah, well, it was like a (laughs) a, it it was like a XML bug, but I knew they accepted. It was weird because you could send HTML to it instead of XML, and I was like, "Hmm, I wonder what parser they're using." Because there were certain certain tags they wouldn't allow me to use, and I needed them to exploit stuff. Yeah, and I had this idea like, I wonder if I can hide the tags from them somehow. But when it forwards it, it will actually be unhidden because uh, some other parser where it actually ends up after that um, treats it in a different way. Mm. Uh, so I was like, okay, how, how surely there's some tool you can just spin up all of these things and you see like how does each parser parse it? Sure. And it's like, nope. And then standard moment in all its life. Ah oh, man, someone should build this.
0: I'm that someone. I guess I'm someone.
8: <laughs> so,
0: That's great, man. So you, you went and you built it. You took how many... Geez, I mean, you press parse in here and it just keeps on going. So you've got like so 16 many. Or,
8: or a yeah, 16 a, parsers. A bunch of them. Wow, yeah. dude.
0: How much of a pain in the and, butt was that to, uh, to do?
8: I mean, the biggest problem was uh, choosing whether I should implement... Like a whole web stack for it, or if I should make a, like a hack, which I ended up doing. Like, mm-hmm. do I need to make, have like a web server and a whole MDC framework mm-hmm. just to do, call this parsing function and see what it does? Uh, but instead do it, build it with Apache and uh, CGI actually. And then it will just run like a uh, live version of it. Wow.
9: So
8: Very cool, man. Yeah, so that's. I took the shots about this actually, which way to do it in a, in a practical way? Because I'm like, it's gonna take a long time if I'm gonna have to build an actual application. The heck, with all yeah, this. it is, dude. Yeah. Oh, I see. So you you open sourced it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I did, and uh, oh, it's and got and a Docker. Put,
0: it's got, dude. I did not see this when I did the research. This, yeah. this, uh, no, it's
8: each, each one of them. It's a, you know, it's own. Docker
0: container. No, dude. And then so okay. So you you got it in a Docker container, and then you can literally just do echo your 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 DOM, pipe it yeah. into Docker exec, and then give it the name yeah. of the parser you want, and it'll yeah, just do can. it.
8: Yeah, that's, dude. That's this is so you can like fuss it through that uh, if you like to, or you can use the the beautiful web interface
0: this is really well architected dude i'm really impressed nice nice work with this Thank you. do you have any um yeah, so, it, so did you did you pop the xml thing or no
8: i did i did and uh, like uh, because I, I managed to uh hide tags with it because it forced the uh, um it's comments incorrectly ah. so it didn't recognize dash dash exclamation Greater than as an end of a comment.
0: Ah. You can also like, uh, okay.
8: If you, if you've used source like, uh, of it in see, that's like, a I have put in like a combination of those things that I found for different parsers that we, we like hide the content of the document.
0: Oh, up, up, so, at, up at the top there or is that? No, what do you like? Um, on just the homepage of. Yeah, the room that I see
8: if you take for example just standard a uh, 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 beautiful soup and HTML yellow yeah, yeah. and and you try to scrape my site and like take the links you cannot do it
2: no way really <laughs>
8: <laughs> and it's same with like flo like, uh, a uh, couple others. but um so yeah that was like the second like interesting challenge I thought of uh, when, when building that's just like hmm I wonder if you can hide from, from from scrapers. Like, what implications I mean, can that have? Can't be
0: the good old regex, though. Uh, that's true.
8: That's true.
0: Yeah. No, that's really cool, though. I love that you built that in. That's like some serious hacker, hacker shit right there. When you like. <laughs> make your own way you implement this on your own website just for the kicks yeah so that they can't you know pull your linkedin and your twitter from aviladimbrun.se <laughs> yeah. high value high value links you've got there only for human eyes
8: um, yeah no no so i did find some stuff and i have uh, been thinking about implementing like X, the same with xml courses too, too, that's something that i that i think yeah, could have specific bugs too. And like, 100%. If someone wants a research area. Pick a bunch of different standardized XML parsers. See how they treat like external types or other type of XXE issues and play around with it. Cause if there was someone in the, in the legal <laughs> thinking podcast this, but mm. actually, I don't think yeah. they meant what I thought they meant. Uh, but they gave me an idea that like, okay, maybe there's a parser that doesn't require the doc type declaration to be at the start of the document. And uh, I, oh, I couple, saw that conversation. That did, looked interesting. But, but that would make XSC like a new type of XC, I guess, which would be like ex- external doc type injection. So when you, when you're injecting into the body of the, it's not is like that Instead of, yeah controlling both things
0: so I actually have a, a piece of research that I want to say I don't remember whether I actually put it into the saml episode for for critical thinking but there is a Chrome browser exploit that was yeah. a, a couple of weeks ago not the one that, mm-hmm. that dropped in the critical thinking research uh, oh. x1 recently um, where they we're using xslt transforms yeah. to do some crazy stuff with the placement of that entity you know the doc type tag um and so there essentially it was like uh, it, it was using the parser to stick it up at the top and on one on the first parser it would it would not have it at the top, and on the next one it would, and then trigger the XXT. Um, so the other cool thing you can do with that is the XSLT transforms, which I am really excited to dive into deep more. I hope I hope some of the listeners go and do this research because I I'm super swamped with stuff right now, but I would love to see nice. any yeah. research r- research on XSLT. Maybe I can nerd snipe you on it, dude. The transforms are so cool. I did. Have you have you like learned at all about XSLT transforms?
8: Yeah, yeah, I, I found. It's a self debugged one and a half week ago. Oh my gosh, actually. of
0: course you have. All right, whatever, whatever, Matthias.
8: All right. We're, but that mean, it was one and a half week ago, so it means I forgot everything. Yeah,
0: your, t- your context <laughs> window is gone. <laughs> no, that's great, man. So, all right, well then, so you've actually done some more hands on stuff with it than I have, because I've just done mostly reading and ideating on it. Um, yeah. What I, is your. I, I want, yeah, share, like, share, share but, a little bit about that, would you?
8: I can share about that, but I just. Used- it was a really interesting point that you brought up with this XSLT because it, XSLT is basically meant to like transform the incoming XML document to something else. Yeah. So it's pre parse Transform it. You can transform it into something that now has an XSC in it. That's yeah. I guess that's what you meant, but it I is. just have to revisit that because it's awesome.
0: That's great, yeah. man. I can see. know yeah, he's. And for those of you that are, are listening, not watching on YouTube, there's like this far off look in his eyes that is the the, the, <laughs> the mark of of a, a bug forming. I can see it. That's great, man. I love that. Um, yeah, so but, you, but there's also a lot of
8: stuff, or there are some different, there's a couple of different accessibility libraries. But you can do like file system stuff Yeah. Uh, too, and get like environment variables and stuff. So you can even do more stuff than we just, just normally see.
0: Yeah, 100%. and. and So, yeah, I'd like to, normally before people come on the podcast, I message them and I say, hey, you know, check out this document, you know, that sort of thing, right? And then I also tell them, hey, bring a bug or two so that we can talk about it on the pod. And I totally forgot to do that for you for this episode. So I'm sorry about that. We can talk about that one. Yeah. Can you you give us some info on that? That'd be great. Uh,
8: So that one was, you could upload an XML
0: through
8: a bunch of different hoops you had to jump through, but it ended with like, you could provide an XML, and then in another place, you could provide an XSLT document. Mm. And the funny thing is, the XSLT document is also specified as XML. Right. And that that one was vulnerable to XSLT, but I didn't find it because I tried it in the original document, that was not vulnerable. So then I was like, okay, XSLT, I'm gonna learn it, XSLT specific bugs. And then, like, after I played with it and talked to Franz about it, he's like, but this is sexist thing.
0: Freaking <laughs> Franz, was, dude. Shut up, Franz. Shut up, Franz. <laughs> like, why I, get out of here. <laughs> Who invited you to this anyway?
8: <laughs> but it, it, in any way, so one novel trick uh, that I learned with that was that I forget exactly what the operation was called, but there's, like, a couple of ways you can read files. And you can read JSON files with one operation. Uh, I can try and write it later, and, and we can we can link to this documentation. Yeah, that's super you cool. Can write, or you, sorry, you can read XML documents, uh, but you can also read raw files. Yeah. But the problem is... Uh, oh, this is connecting to the next part, actually, of this secret document. Uh, you could also... In the parser, you weren't allowed to read the read, um, null no bytes into the... The, ah, uh, the resulting document. Interesting. So you're like, oh, damn, can't read, like, Proxel environment. Yeah. It's, like, separated Windows. Uh, but what you could do is specify the encoding of, of the file. So what you could do is so you could tell it, treat it as, uh, uh, like, UTF-16, for example. And it would spit out, like, a bunch of Chinese characters. And then you could, like, transform that back. Um, and I knew that it was a Java application so I could just use hack and then know that it's like Java versus Java. Um, so I actually expected like the environment via like reading the file as you UTF16 and then turn it back. Dude, yeah. that is
0: you've been doing so much crazy charset set stuff lately, man. That's that's really yeah, cool but, uh, that you bypass that with that though. That's that's an amazing idea.
8: I like I like I suppose type confusion bugs. Yeah. Uh, Like it's a broad
2: area. It is. They
8: they are my, one of my favorites. And and encoding is like, I'm still not entirely sure. I, there's a blog post actually. I I can link it to. Mm -hmm. It's like really old, like 2007 or something. Sure. And it's called something like everything you need to know about encodings and short sets as a developer.
0: Okay. I need that. Okay, so...
8: Yeah, yeah. And, and it starts from the beginning. Like, in the beginning, there was everything. And within that, there was the ASCII. And then, like, the high bytes was not used for anything. And then, so, <laughs> people started implementing whatever they wanted over, like, 0x80. And uh, that wasn't really standardized. But then uh, IBM was like, okay, we take all of them, and we give them each a like, code page. So now, when you see, like, a short set, it's like CP1234. Yeah. That's that's the code page. Fun wow, books.
0: dude, that's that's cool, man. I would love to read that document. I think that I think a lot of our listeners would love to read that too. So I'll um, well I'll follow up with you after that and try to try to get that in the description.
8: Yeah.
0: Um, and, uh, like,
8: uh, encoding bytes is really 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 interesting too, and yeah. also things like injecting like byte order mark to to confuse. Uh, in- injecting what? Like a, Byte order mark. Oh, so byte order mark. <clears throat> yeah. So you can use it in, like, UTF16, for example, or like. Is this the like encoding flip
0: it around thing, like the left to right override?
8: Yeah, exactly. It's it's like if it's little endian or big endian. So like, should the top byte come first or second?
0: Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're talking about like um like, uh, UTF16LE, UTF16B. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
8: So if you just say you have sixteen, 16, right. then it's ambiguous. Right. You can start the, the document or the string of strings yeah. with, with like it is byte order mark, which is like FF, I think, for one of them. And, and then, then it's like, aha, uh-huh, you're telling it to what coding uh, is.
0: Okay. So hold on, wait a second. So you can actually put that in the data? Yeah. What?
2: Yeah. By by order? Mart- by byte order mark. Byte.
0: Order... <clears throat> Dang, dude. I need a bigger notepad for this episode. Um, byte order mark. And, and so you can put that in the data and it will define how the rest of that data string is read?
8: It, it should have to start with it. But I wouldn't be surprised if some people or some of interpreters of parsers could have it in the middle.
0: Holy crap. That's amazing. That is, that is super... I'm just kind of yeah, now now I've got the thing in my head, you know, I'm looking off into the into the distance and and ideating on on what what could become of that. That's that's really, really interesting, dude. I'm definitely gonna have to look into that after this. Um yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. I'm sure that'll result in a bunch of in a bunch of bugs. Um, yeah, there's
8: also some encodings that have special, I don't think it's called byte order marks, but it's like special special sequence of characters that, like, transform it. So, like, in the middle of the document, you can have byte, blah, and blah. And then it tends it to, like, okay, now it's this other way of interpreting it, and it ends with something else. Uh, so no you way. In, there is encodings where it's just like, okay, now it's everything everything's fine. It's like, no, now it is not. Now it's this other thing.
0: Dude, that is so interesting. So if you could get them to parse it with that char set, then you could really use that to bypass some con- security controls because, you know, whatever parser will be looking at it and being like, okay, you know, this is just meaningless text. And then when the actual end, you know, program runs it, it's something completely different because it's it's actually parsing the char set differently.
2: Yeah,
8: yeah, exactly. So if they had like a screen contains, for example, then they could be... Different. Dude, this has got to be. They do, they, this was a topic too, and this is what I saw. Like normalization, they can like transform it into yeah. Some of sorts.
0: Well, this sets. is this is very, and you know, of course, my mind goes directly to web servers and reverse proxies and WAFs, and this is actually pretty much exactly what Sam Erb and I were talking about. And, and I, I don't know if you saw it in the document, but I I did a talk on this at DefCon, um, on how you can define host headers for some. Uh, for some HTTP servers, and you can define them in different encodings, right? So literally, our exploit for this bug was host. And this is a host header: host colon equals question mark ISO 8859-1 question mark Q, and then a bunch of hex data, and that actually got converted into our exploit on on the the backend of that um, server that we were talking to. It bypassed the nginx. Uh, configuration that had some limits on the host header characters being used and allowed us to inject right into the nginx config file on the back end because of the way that we could smuggle characters like a space and stuff like that into the host header um and so now i'm thinking like man there's got to be even more possibilities of this sort of thing with stuff that can change mid you know, mid-flow uh, mid and change into something else because maybe the Nginx proxy on the front end reads, decodes the character set, but the one on the back end doesn't and it doesn't normalize it. And then it just treats it like normal text. And then you can yeah. pop XSS or you can, you know, bypass any sort of filtering yeah, that's in place.
8: Yeah, but like you also need to... You, when you're talking about XSS, either you need server-side normalization for it to transform, because when you're sending, like, if you're using your, that's 16, for example, yeah. what, what you're actually sending is just two bytes. And, and if you want, like, uh, less than characters, those two bytes will be no byte and 3C. So if it filters 3C in, in like, an 8-bit ASCII encoding, it, it will go, like, okay, is this a 3C? Is this a 3C? No? Sure, C sure, sure, to sure. Say Yes, and uh, so you either need normalization, or you need some kind of encodings supported in the client that were like 003C or 3 f means yeah. less than.
0: I'm wondering if there's other, there's got to be other encodings besides, you know, UTF-8, UTF-16 that put those at different code points, right? In browsers? No, well... You know, and I linked actually (laughs) funny. You mentioned that, Matthias, because I did my homework for this episode. And if you click the first, the first link under the character sets, um, heading in the secret document, I have a, a link directly to the Chromium source code in all of the different, um, uh, character encodings that we, you know, that can be used in here. And I see one of them, you know, is this uh, ISO 8859-1 that I'm more familiar with from the, the DEF CON talk. And so I'm wondering if there's different ways, you know, or do any of these different encodings put a different Put the you know less than sign or greater than sign or whatever at a different code point so that if 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 it it bypasses the front end and says okay you know the front end says this is uh you know a question mark but the back end says okay I'm actually not reading this as as you know Windows dash one you know one two five two and actually I'm I'm interpreting this as UTF-8 or interpreting this as ASCII and then you know you get the output as an actual script tag does that does that make sense or am I thinking about this incorrectly?
8: I mean, it's a good idea, but the, the ISO 8859.
0: Yeah, it's
8: is, different. Is, no, it is ASCII based. No, no, I know, so I know. It, it's
0: not what we're. It, it doesn't meet the standards of what we're we're looking at. Yeah, but yeah. but if there is
8: something like that, then yes. Unfortunately, I don't think that there is uh, any non ASCII supported sets for like HTML and. Dangerous content type in browser. Ah, but so I be wrong. so the
0: the overlap. Yeah, anyway,
8: they they used to be, they used to be. Yeah, especially in like Internet of Core had some special cases, and like all of them at some points the UTF-7, so, which is just like seven seven bit. So ASCII
0: controls. ASCII would be so the base for all of these is what you're saying. So yeah, the first ASCII 256 actually, characters of every single one, that three C is always going to be the mm-hmm. the angle bracket for for XSS. Yeah, but, but, uh, yeah.
8: Uh, ASCII is the all the characters you need and punctuation for the English language. So it starts at 0x20 and stops at, 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 uh, at 7, seven like smaller letters C. Yeah. At least that's how I learned in my
1: mom. All right, and we are on to the bug stories section. So in this clip from episode 27, we're going to be talking about the asset note share file RCE. Uh, specifically there was an authentication bypass relating to the padding in aes 256 so make sure to check this clip out yeah yeah i mean it's always they're always anytime you see a blog post from Acid Note, it's always very high quality and it goes into a ton of detail about like their thought methodology and mm-hmm. the path that they took to get there and they do a really good job of explaining sort of like the attacker mindset as they're coming towards something that like from the title you can tell it's very severe yeah. um you know it's an rce so i think that provides sort of a unique insight and oftentimes it's not like the super straightforward type of like oh i put like id like semicolon ID yeah. in in a query right, parameter right, right, and it pops right. you know like it's usually a little bit more in depth and it goes into like how they discovered it and yeah. the files that they were looking for and the patterns and stuff and i think like that's really useful because a lot of times you see sort of like the black box approach where it's like i was just fuzzing this endpoint i saw an interesting parameter i tried a <laughs> command injection and it worked and that's it and you don't really get the understanding for like what that looks like on the on the back end or like the engineering side or like if you were doing source code review how that might um, how that might look, and so I think uh, it's really awesome to see the blog post that they yeah. put out because they go into that level of detail. Yeah, for
0: sure. As always, I love the methodology and the write up. They they talk about they dump all the files. They they talk about um this this uh I guess function that's getting called to parse the cookie set current principle from session cookie. Um, which you know, if you were just kind of looking through the code, you might assume that that is going to be something that does, you know, an authentication check. And in fact, the title of that section, they, they titled authenticated, but not really Um, because that once you double click into that, that, you know, that call, it just skips over it. If it, doesn't find the cookie that it was looking for, um, and so it's like, okay, well, sort of that was going to be an authentication check, and there's some other pieces down the line where um, you know you would assume authentication was was um, was necessary, but they kind of you know weave around out of those and eventually end up finding a path traversal not in. Um, let me see if I can find the name of the parameter. It's not in the parameter that you would think. Um, here it is right here yeah so it's it's not in the parameter that allows you to specify the path it's a it's a in the uh, upload ID parameter um and that gets concatenated with the path a little bit later and even though the path is actually... Um, sanitized, uh, the uh, upload ID is not, which meaning which results in the path traversal which allowed them to get arbitrary file right. So that was a really I think that was right. a really good method. And then th- this one also sort of has a little bit of an a, a twist to it, which is you need to have a a valid, parent ID within the application. And so that parent ID, um, you might assume would be something, you might have to have like a valid folder or a valid, um, you know, ID of a folder or something. But really, they found that all you have to do is have a um, string that does not fail when it gets uh, AES decrypted. And so it doesn't matter what that string is, it's not used anywhere. But if it if it is if it gets uh you know if it passes the AES decryption, then you're able to to do the attack. So they they outline really well um, how AES works, how um, the PKCS. Uh, seven padding works, and how they were able to use that to um, really reliably guess a value for this um, parent ID. I think it was only 128 or 256 um, tries that it took to brute force, and then they find a, a valid value that will pop and result in them getting a shell. So, once again, you know, big round of applause to the Asin yeah, awesome team. Awesome work! They they killed it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's um it's really interesting cuz this is a something that we talk about in app appsec a yeah. lot where it's like validation versus verification and a, like to- like a textbook example is JWT tokens where they're just checking is this a valid JWT token not is the contents inside of the JWT token valid. And so those are two very different yeah. things. Like if you're just checking that this is a valid JWT token, it can de- decode properly and that's it and you're not actually checking who signed it or is the key correct and is the person who they're saying they are in the jwt token actually who they are who they are like if you're not doing those checks then that's where these little like weird weird edge cases because you might read through this and i'm sure it's like whoever wrote this like didn't think that this was going to be an issue they probably were like yeah just you know check if this is valid Mm -hmm. and go forward and that's not enough you need to like also just verify like do that extra step and that that pitfall i think hits in a lot of different areas uh um, yeah and you know this is just another example of it, you know in a big product as well like just that classic kind of case where they checked it but they didn't fully verify it.
0: yeah i don't know about on the jwt front i kind of feel like that's the whole cell of the jwt though is that like you know it should be sort of self-authenticating because it's signed by the you know by the person that that has the the private key, right? So, you know, and obviously that doesn't always work out to be the case, but, um, you know, these different technologies do have their different pitfalls. And that is, you know, in in the JWT scenario, as you mentioned, that if somebody does, you know, find a way to forge a token or get their hands on the private key or whatever, then you're just totally
1: screwed. So, yeah. 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 So much of that comes down to, like, which library you're using, too. Like, if you're just using a library that separates out, like, Mm -hmm. validation and verification, then that might just like put you in a big pitfall where you're using the built-in library or something but it has an extra function that you needed to call and you didn't know it or something like that and that oftentimes is just either a documentation problem or something even stupider than that and you know it 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 happens to everybody so i think it's just uh you know it's cool to see it in the wild and uh, i think it's just something that you should always keep keep an eye out for and, and just like you know Check and see are they are they actually verifying my my JWT contents? Can I just give it any signed JWT and will it work? Yeah.
0: So, um, I guess bringing it back to the blog post, I did have one more thing that I'll just try to explain from you know without you having to go and read the blog post, which is like I've done a couple deep dives on AES. And um and you know the padding portion of it for padding Oracle attacks. So for those of you that have done that in the past and want a little bit of a refresher, the way that the uh, PKCS seven padding works is that you've got your you know you've got your sixteen uh, byte blocks, and then when you don't have when your data does not sum up to sixteen bytes, the rest of that sixteen bytes is filled by the value that is the number of remaining bytes. So if you've got fifteen, uh you know. Uh, bytes in that in that block, and you need to get one more. That last byte is going to contain the a byte that points to one. And if it's you know fourteen, then yeah, it's going like to have zero two. One. Yeah, zero. Zero two zero two, right? Um, and so that yeah. that's something that I had back there, you know, in in the memory database, and that but just doesn't come, you know, sometimes when I need it to. So there's your little refresher on on um, AES uh, padding protocol for any of you that are interested yeah. in that that low level of cryptography. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you, see, you probably see this a lot in CTF, too. Yeah. So like, if you decrypt an AES block and it's not exactly the block length, then it'll always have, like, trailing bytes mm-hmm. that usually are not printable because it's from, like, 0x01 to 0x0f. And so oftentimes you'll be like, oh, what is that? Oh, right, I need to unpad it. And there's, like, a some copy paste function that i always use off of stack overflow to do that in python yeah
0: yeah no it, python yeah. man this is just another great example cuz the exploit here is written in python is like you really if you're going to try to get to this level of you know pro hacking you need to be pretty handy with python or you know some sort of scripting language so that you can just write out yeah. these pocs pretty quickly Alrighty, next up is one of my favorite clips from all of our CTBB podcasting from this last year, a clip in which I get to talk to Alex Chapman himself about a bug that I duped him on, an Alex Chapman bug, one of the finest accomplishments in my bug bounty career. This is the Perforce RCE. Um, hope you guys enjoy this one. I most certainly did. This, this was a bug at a live hacking event um, earlier this year. And it was a RCE that, and, and this is the thing that makes me sad too, is that um, this is a, a blog post that Alex wrote up on, on a specific vulnerability in a specific protocol, uh, Perforce, and um, and I, you know, using to be fair to myself, using other resources, and Alex's blog, um, I found uh, you know an RCE on this on this target, the shared target that we had, and um, and. Then uh, I submitted the report before Alex did. <laughs> so he duped... he du- And we split the bounty, right? Because it's a live hacking event dupe. But, um, uh, you know, it, it was... It, one, it was a really... Um, Great example of the way that Alex Alex thinks and 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 what we were talking about earlier with blogging about things that you're passionate about. Um, and a perfect example of this client-server trust um sort of situation that we have, because that's where the vuln was. Um, but and Alex, I I don't recall whether I sent you this specific vulnerability before we started. Uh, recording the podcast. Do you want to talk to the technical details of this vuln? uh Did you do you have the it, it fresh enough in your mind, or do you want me to take a stab at it and you can kind of supplement?
9: Yeah, I think I've, um, I've actually been looking at it again recently for something else, so it, it is. Oh, top of what? Mind.
0: Okay, all right. It's oh. yeah, talk exactly. us through this it, man. Is, talk us through it. This is an interesting one. So
9: again, so for for those who don't know, Perforce is a uh, version control system, so similar to Git mm. or. Um, svn that's heavily used in the gaming industry because it's it works very really well with very large files um so if you've got really large assets 3d models that sort of thing um and it, it it's a very typical example of the uh, the client trust that we mentioned before so all the um Air Force client really does is connect to the server and the server then says run this command and then so the server will say okay show me what files you've got check the hashes of the files against the Files I've got. So rather than it being client controlled, it's server controlled. Mm. Um, and that, that was the first thing that kind of got my interest. I was like, well, how does it do? How does it give you f- new files that you don't have on your system? Mm. And it turns out it just sends a, uh, I think the command is literally send file yeah. or, um, or write file. Client
0: write file is what I have yeah. in my report right here, which is just gold. I was like, like, I love that. that. Sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah.
9: Um, so then seeing that like okay right how how are we going to go about, about testing this so what do you do break out python and then start trying to reverse engineer the protocols as it's going on the wire and wireshark and, and building it up bite by bite bit mm. by bit uh to a point where I pretty much had a fully functioning um s- server written in python mm. um to kind of handle the auth do all the rest of it to get it to the point um, where with just a login, it would be able to write an arbitrary file on the um, on the connecting system. Mm. And, and that was great. So then, I think just in saying this, this bug collision glitch, on the uh, life hacking event, I, I kind of have a bit of a blasé attitude to submitting these bugs that I don't think anybody else is going to submit in life hacking events. <laughs> uh, and this one, I wasn't going to submit in the do period. I was like, nobody's going to find that. Oh, so I'll, dude. I'll, that would have been I'll, a I'll nightmare, it, man. Yeah, I'll prove it after the dupe period closes because uh, nobody else will find it. And I was like, oh, I've got a little bit of time. I'll, I'll get it in. Holy moly. And then when I found out it'd been duped, I was like, oh. Yeah, I'm oh, going submitting no. everything. That's yeah
3: stupid thing. Yeah, right. I,
9: as soon as it was duped, I went to the uh and I was like, um, can you let me know who duped Who? Who was it? <laughs> <laughs> I want to have a word.
0: It was, it was, um, and and, and it was, I want to say on your team as well, they took you guys took bets on who it was, right? Yeah. And and freak, who, who was it that guessed it was me? One of them correctly guessed that it was me. Was it? Yeah, might, might have been Douglas. I, I want to say remember. it was Douglas as well. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciated that vote of confidence. It is a uh, one of the highest honors in my bug bounty career to have duped an Alex Chapman bug. Um, so I'm sorry for <laughs> using your own blog post against you, but um, uh, yeah, I've completely forgotten I'd written that to be honest. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? No way. Saying, yeah. So you didn't even <laughs> reference back to it when you when you had. Oh my gosh. Um, Wow, that's crazy! Um, That's awesome. And and so I I just wanted to go to what you were saying. You know, you wrote out a full a full perforce server, and I'm looking at my exploit right now. And uh, you know, I I I love that experience of writing out you know like a binary level protocol um, for these sort of things and you know you said that handles the auth and stuff like that. I'm looking at my code and it you know handles the auth. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't mind that. You know, like <laughs> you know, it connects to the server. You're like, no, 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 it's fine. Yes, yes, you got it correct. You know, like yeah. and then and then you just, yeah, yes, you're more connected. Here's the code. Run. Um and
1: it's just a it's just a fun vulnerability type for sure. All right. And you've made it to the very last clip. Probably, if this is in order. Unlikely. This is from uh, (laughs) unlikely, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) Otherwise, welcome to the middle of the video or something. (laughs) This is from episode 48, uh, an awesome episode with the MBH DEF CON uh, black badge earner, Googler, Sam Erb. Uh, Sam is talking about an XSLT bug that he found, and it's just a really awesome story. So make sure to listen to this one. So I
0: mentioned um, on the SAML podcast a while back that uh, SAM was one of the first people that introduced me to XSLT. Um, And so, Sam, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that bug and, yeah, just kind of talk to us about that. Yeah, so
3: this this is one of the first life hacking events I attended. And uh, there was this endpoint that accepted... um, It was XML, but it wasn't XML. It's XSLT, which is like a... Data transformation language. I, I
0: okay, so it accepted uh, XSLT directly. Yes, um,
3: but it—it oh. it would accept like it was like you'd accept like your your input and then the XSLT to, to transform it with. Um, and so it's oh, one of those okay. like uh, business logic type languages that like, well, I'm probably butchering this for XSLT experts, um, but it's one of those business logic type languages that allow you to transform data kind of arbitrarily in like a user friendly way. Like, you know, somebody who can write an Excel document can go and write this XML format. Um, and so, apparently, as far as I found out, like actually a lot of folks, sort of folks at this live hacking event found the endpoint and just kind of did a simple, like, XSC payload and kind of called it a day. Um, yep. I decided to spend a bunch of extra hours digging into this. Classic, um, classic Sam. So what I actually ended up doing was like, I actually went to the function reference and I stepped through every function, uh,
0: I'm sorry, yeah, hold, hold up, what? So yeah. <laughs> so so, so, I, I, what you, so you you did you take up, like, did you somehow leak the library name and then set up your own local instance and then hook up a debugger? I mean, whoa, 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 what did we do there?
3: Yes. <laughs> I think it was open source. <laughs> yeah, I think it was open source. So he I'm pretty sure yes? I set my own instance of this uh, oh my just gosh. to test it out. Um, but then, like, I, also, I just
0: want to. I just want to highlight how Sam was like, yeah. So anyway, I thought this was interesting. So I just, you know, uh, put a uh, breakpoint on the
3: debug. I was like, what? Yeah, I so like, mean, to be fair, okay. like, this is Many hours in after trying many different things. Like, there's, like a, there's there are a fair number of public XSS exploits, and like this seemed to be fairly patched. Um, yeah. So I did. So yeah, I, if I recall correctly, I did set up my own instance, and this was like 2019. No, this is even earlier. This would have been 2018 or 2017. Um, and yeah, I just stepped through every function, saw what it did. And then I eventually realized that like, you could string like two or three of these functions together to get like a really cool, um, uh, LFI gadget. And I believe I also had an RC gadget in there as well. Yes, um, you did. But I just remember that. Cause like, I was like, there were some limitations around it. Like it was, there was a couple, I don't recall exactly what the limitation was, but like, I kept trying to exploit it further and. I couldn't, like maybe I couldn't like pivot to Root or something like that. Mm, And so mm -hmm. I actually gave a presentation at a live hacking event afterwards, like showing this off, which is probably where you remember from. Yes. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm like really disappointed in this bug. You know, I thought I could take it further. And I I think it was, uh, Doggy G was like, dude, like you still got to, Crit, like, yeah, like, on. <laughs> <laughs> chill it out. Like,
0: you're just reading, you know, arbitrary files from production on a multi billion dollar company. Yeah. Like, just,
3: just accept it, all, t-
0: like, Take the dub, yeah, yeah. you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, uh, <laughs> XSLT is a really interesting thing that I'm looking forward to diving into a little bit more when I find, um, I think, you know, so like that, something that takes it. I'm sorry, go. No, go. go, no, go I was going to say, and, um,
3: there's like this whole class of like, business logic languages and things that aren't really ever meant to be exposed to the internet and when they yeah. are a result in really scary things. And it's like there have been yeah. efforts to lock these down, but like often they weren't really ever built to be locked down. And so like they're just going to be, they're going to continue to be kind of like a source of vulnerabilities going forward. Mm. And, you know, I think that that's a great area for more original research.
0: I mean, we even see this with with XML, right? Mm -hmm. Like XML is a data markup language. Like, why does it have this functionality to like read local files and send HTTP requests, right? Um, Right. So really it it is cool. Anytime you see the opportunity to do something like like that where you're actually parsing some type of code, you know, um, on the server side, big money there. Already, dude, that's a wrap. That was a long ass episode filled with some amazing content. It was kind of amazing. I'm not gonna lie, to go back and like review over this year and see all of the
1: amazing things we've talked about, it was it was a blast. It's been such an awesome year, so I hope that all this, all these little clips and tidbits and stuff, uh, you'll be just playing it over and over on loop i know i will i have so many different notes and awesome learnings to take away from this yeah man i I actually had another as we went back through and re-listened for the
0: clips i have a full notebook uh you know of stuff that i need to go back and re-research again so yeah it's been a great year thanks everyone for listening and we're gonna bring some awesome content as well in 2024 so hope you keep listening I almost forgot. I also want to give a big shout out to those members of the critical thinking discord community that helped with the selection of the clips for this awesome mega episode. That's Tharunet, Set47, XSS Doctor, Bugluck, Luck, Bebix, UG Leak, and PJ Stew. So thank you guys so much for all of your help and for going over a lot of critical thinking content with me to find the best
2: clips for this episode.